Wow, what an ending! Who'd have thought Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father? Ah, oh, thank you! Oh, thank you, Mr. Blow the Picture for me. Welcome to episode 48 of the Film 89 podcast. We are still in lockdown. What are we now? Week 8, 9, 10? Really, I've lost count. <laughs> I'm still Sky. Oh, hello. Podcast, it's me. Talking from the uh, satellite station of Film 89 Towers. Neil Gaskin, good to be back. And I understand we're also joined by a very special man who's going to perform a rendition of John Lennon's Imagine for us. Yeah, that, that, thanks for letting me know about that in advance. I haven't had a chance to prepare. I, I'm still um, I'm still Richie, and um, I'm also in lockdown as we all are. And um, who knows where we are? Episode forty-eight could be one hundred and forty-eight. Who knows what's going on? Indeed, and we are all writers, editors, and general idiots over at filmeighty9.co.uk. And tonight is is a bit of a special episode for us because, firstly, it's the first time the three of us have recorded an episode together since July twenty nineteen when we did the Toy Story Four Spider Man Far From Home episode. July 2019 you know that was a better time when the world was a far safer place and well secondly it's a special episode because tonight we're covering in depth one of our all-time favorite films which is celebrating its 40th anniversary today it is The Empire Strikes Back now gentlemen are we all agreed that this is probably the best of the five Star Wars films I'm surprised we got to use the word probably when we're, when yeah. we're talking about the Empire Strikes Back, to be honest. <laughs> Without a shadow of, the, of doubt. And I'd say five Star Wars films, and for those who are uh, not certain, you had uh, Star Wars in 77, you had The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, Return of the Jedi in 1983, then you had Rogue One in 2016, and you had Solo in 2018. I think that's it, guys, for the Star Wars films. They, they only did five, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. 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 There's a spin-off. There's a spin-off uh, TV show as well called The Mandalorian. But other oh, than yeah, that, yeah, no, yeah. other than there that, was, nothing Star Wars there, there, there was, was a bit of made. fan a bit of fan fiction. Well, fan is uh, is a, uh, you know, a choice, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, yeah, fan fiction, but uh, no, yeah, five, five. So quite, quite a small and uh, a neat and self-contained uh, franchise really. A, a lot a lot of ups and not many downs. Incredibly well thought out. Yeah. If fucking the temp- only. The, the, the template <laughs> for the Marvel universe. Yeah. <laughs> so gents the empire strikes back um, obviously anyone who's listened to our previous episodes will know we're all on the whole to a certain degree pretty big star wars fans yeah of the five films you've mentioned yes i would say i am yeah yeah <laughs> god it, it was episode one wasn't it that was the, the first time obviously uh you know that what what some of our listeners call the dream team <laughs> <laughs> that's what we call the yeah dream. <laughs> no but to be fair we do listen to the podcast so we are listeners yeah. yeah okay yeah yeah i'll give you that <laughs> you know the very first episode of this podcast way back in what was it january 2018 was a star wars film that i won't mention 
it was a simpler time. We went out to watch it, um, and then we had something to eat in a restaurant. Yeah, and what? then uh, we and then we all sat together around a table and discussed, and discussed it, it in person. <laughs> yeah, not uh, via the medium of Skype, which is what we're doing tonight. I think this is the first time the three of us have all, all done this as well, because even when we've done Skype calls, there's always been at least two of us sat in one location, haven't it? Yeah, yeah it's, it's always yeah. been. Yeah, it's always been Skype because the person we're talking to is, you know, across the Atlantic or in Italy or any other number of countries where, you know, some of our guests also have been on. But yeah, we. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Because we're always usually sat around the table at, uh, you know, Three Kings Studios or Film Eighty Nine Towers or uh, whatever we want to call Richie's house. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the boudoir de Robert. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The wild thing is, we're, we're we're within kind of we're, we're on the we're doing this now, but we're within twenty miles of each other. That's it. Just, it is. It is. Yeah, that's uh, quite sad, really, isn't it? I gotta say as well. I, I literally, I was talking about it earlier, and I was saying it, it's quite sad because we've all got sort of like hectic lives, busy jobs, families, and stuff, commitments, and it's quite nice sometimes the sort of social aspect of sitting down and usually ripping into a Star Wars film together. It's quite sad that we can't all be together to do it tonight. It really is, and it, it does seem a little bit strange because even though we're almost every other episode, we, we've got someone on that we're talking to via Skype, but you know, there's always at least two of us sat together, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. In fact, you going back to that episode in July 2019, the Spider-Man Toy Story 4 episode, there was four of us sat there. Because we also had, um, yeah, we had uh, Chris Bynum yeah, on, Chris. didn't we? Yeah, yeah true, yeah. yeah. And we had a guest appearance from Zach as well, didn't we? we so we had five of us. Five there, people yeah, did, yeah. In, yeah, in <laughs> one room recording, yeah. So, guys, obviously the film we're talking about tonight, there, there, there's been, you know, since Film 89 was first born as an idea, we, we, we and certainly since the podcast was born, we've had sort of like a, a dream wish list of films we'd like to cover. And I think it's safe to say, guys, Empire Strikes Back would be probably top five on that list. Oh, oh easily, easy, yeah. yeah. Without a doubt. I think it's a, I think it's a film that it's set in, every, you know, pretty much every one of our sort of top fives as well, separately, brief in the podcast yeah. as well. You know, we're talking about a film now that is exactly forty years old. So, if anyone, in fact, I think the introduction that you would have just heard is going to give away a pretty big spoilers to the plot in the Empire Strikes Back. It has got, you know, if you don't already know this, it's got one of the biggest twists in all of cinema. So, if you've not seen Empire Strikes Back by some miracle. And you've got any what's, interest. What's wrong with you? Yeah, what is wrong with you? Why are you listening to us? <laughs> how, do, <laughs> how can we possibly be friends? Please just go away, watch the film, turn us off, and then come back. But yeah, we are going to be going in-depth and completely spoilerific on this uh, 40-year-old film. So, uh, Neil, what is your earliest memory of The Empire Strikes Back? This is quite a special one for me because this is the first time I can ever remember going to the cinema to watch a film. Mm. I've not got a lot of good memories about my paternal father, but it's still etched in my memory now, coming out of infant school to see my father picking me up in the school gates instead of my mother. Uh, and it was a, a surprise trip to see Empire Strikes Back. I'd not seen Star Wars, but I was absolutely nuts on Star Wars just from playing Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. I picked up all this just from the playground. And this was my very first memorable cinema trip and my very first Star Wars experience. Wow, so Richie, what about yours? It's a, it's a strange one for me because I was born in 1981, so I, I missed all the Star Wars originally, uh, the original trilogy in the cinema. Mm. Um, it was something that, that Star Wars was always there. It was it was on at Christmas, it was on on bank holidays. It was I was very aware of it and I sort of liked what I saw. It, was, it wasn't until perhaps, I don't know, 10, 11 years old that I, I sort of 
um, really sort of got into it. Um, we used to get, you know, the toys weren't really for sale anymore. I, I, it was He-Man figures and Thundercats were my toy obsession. I kind of missed the Star Wars boat by about five years, I think. Um, and it was only because I had sort of older relatives that, that really liked it. And, and like my dad was into Star Trek and, and, and Star Wars and what have you. So it kind of passed down through them that I've gained an interest in it. But I, I think that I, I couldn't have really told you much about the, the individual films uh, and probably until about 93, 94 when they, they were digitally remastered and I had them for Christmas on VHS. You know, that was for the first time that I can remember watching them back to back. And I can remember one Sunday afternoon putting Star Wars on in the morning and watching them th- through all the way through all three films uh, through the whole day. It was that point, you know, I've seen bits and pieces before, but it really got me. So it was quite late for me. Yeah, so what you say there, Rich, about the, the toys and stuff you grew up with, they being like your, your sort of firm childhood memories. I, Star Wars has always been there for me. It's just something that's always been in my life. And when I was a, a young kid, like but when The Empire Strikes Back came out in May 1980, I was three and a half. Now, apparently, my parents did take me to see it, but I've got no recollection of that whatsoever. Weirdly, my first memory of seeing anything from the empire strikes back that left any sort of imprint on me was i was down my great uncle's house one day and he had it on on a little i don't know like 14 inch crt tv in the kitchen uh it was maybe around about christmas time and the first image that sort of burned into my brain was the battle of hoth at the time i sorry but going back a few years before that because this must have been maybe in my sort of early teens possibly but going back to when i was a child i was really into the star wars figures and i, I you know i collected you know quite a lot of them you know friends and cousins of mine did but it was more about the, the toys back then as opposed to the films and i i think like you rich i got into the films in you know a sort of hardcore way probably around about maybe the early 90s when they did release those remastered vhs's of the original trilogy and you know the untouched trilogy before lucas tinkered with them you know a few years later yeah but star wars yeah it's always been here for me it's not like we're reviewing a film and then we're giving our final verdict the empire strikes back as pretty much it's been close with the original trilogy but the empire strikes back's always been a really special film for me and and there's pretty much always been my favourite. In fact, one of my favourite films, full stop. Certainly as a young, so as a teenager, whenever I would think about Star Wars, my main memories of Star Wars, or my main things that I would go to, to, would be from Empire Strikes Back. Mm. Um, And I was born in February 1981. It came out May uh, 1980. Yeah, May 21st. I'm not saying that my parents did go on a date and watch the film, and then something happened afterwards, and nine months later was February 1981. (laughs) Yeah. Listen, I can't Rich, say I'm, I can't say that wasn't the case, but you Rich, know we need to So, Rich, you I, could you could be a true child of Star Wars. I could well be. I, I mean, you know, I, I can't say not, can I? No. <laughs> I would imagine I probably saw because it was re-released. I think it was about the second year after one. There, I would imagine it was probably one of the re-releases I saw. I'm not that old that I saw the original because I would have been. I would have been just about four at the time, so I would imagine it's one of the re-releases I saw because it was re-released twice, wasn't it? Afterwards? It was, yeah. Apparently, one of the, the I think maybe the first film I ever saw in the cinema as a very young child because I don't think my parents get a babysitter it was in 1979. It was one of the UK re-releases of Star Wars, and I'm not going to refer to it as a new hope it's not called a new hope it wasn't called a new hope <laughs> until what the 90s it was called star wars and yes i do know that in 1979 for the re-release a new hope was added just above the opening crawl 
But the film is called Star Wars. All the posters say Star Wars. They don't say Episode 4, A New Hope. It's called fucking Star Wars. And this film we're talking about tonight is called <laughs> The Empire Strikes Back. Just to clarify for anything else, George, Lucas related as well, it's called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Not it's Indiana not- Jones, yeah, and the fucking Raiders yeah. of the Lost Ark. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I, I, I never have a clue what series they're talking about when you mention Raiders. So yeah. I have to have <laughs> I just lost. Yeah. It's quite Swat. strange, though, because he have, he's, he's been a sort of like a victim of his own success, really, hasn't he? You know, he's had to go back and sort of tinker with masterpieces. But this film is probably the one that had the least amount of um, reshot and re, re-gloss scenes, isn't it? You know? Absolutely, but, yeah. Yeah. We'll come on to that in a bit. We, we, yeah, we, we, certainly. We will, you know, we'll try and go through things chronologically, but we'll kind of go into the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff and, the, and you know, the making of the film first. Obviously, after, you know, George Lucas had success in 1973 with American Graffiti, which it grossed over $100 million worldwide. Alan Ladd Jr. was the then the studio chief at 20th Century Fox, and he agreed that George Lucas should be given a decent fee for writing and directing Star Wars. Now, quite cleverly, in one of the biggest coups ever that a director has pulled, Lucas said he didn't want a bigger fee or points, but he wanted the right to make any sequels to Star Wars, and most significantly, from a financial point of view, certainly for Lucas, he would retain the merchandising rights, which, as we now know, ended up being worth billions of dollars in the long run, actually far eclipsing the money that these films would make theatrically. What a shrewd decision, you know? So someone has gone back in time and told them, haven't they? That, that yeah, is exactly. That is ridiculous. And you know, let's just think of the time. 1975, 76, around about the time Star Wars was initially pitched to some of the studios and then when it went into production. Look at the landscape of cinema then. Look at the films which were reaping rewards and doing really well. It was it, it was gangster films like The Godfather, Godfather 2, yeah. horror films like The Exorcist, you, you know, uh, political thrillers like All the President's Men and, and light and fluffy science fiction fantasy really wasn't popular. In fact, science fiction was seen as a bit of a, an almost like a B-movie genre. And, you know, apart from certain films like 2001, 2001 was like your high-end sort of science fiction which was held in high regard. Planet of the Apes as well was successful. But mid to late 70s, or certainly around about that point, mid-70s, when Star Wars was being mooted, surely George Lucas couldn't have had that much foresight. You know, that this was quite obviously going to be a massive hit to him. I think the studio I think the studios were looking at it that way because I think you know if you look at 70s sci-fi, like you say, well, late 60s and you know, and mid to mid 70s sci-fi, you've got your sort of 2001, you've also got your sort of like dystopian sort of everything was used in science fiction as almost a sort of lecture about this is what you're doing to the world, this is wrong. There was no sort of real sci-fi romps, were there? There were no sort of sci-fi no, films that no, were, no. you know, adventure stories set in space. They were all sort of a dark dystopian you know, Soiling Green type films, like, yeah. weren't they, where it was a warning about the sort of perils, and you say, you look at Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Mind you, the way this year is going, I'll be amazed if I'm not finding a Statue of Liberty on Bali Island yeah, Beach by the end of the year. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, but that's what I'm saying. He was the first one, really, to a sort of embrace that. He constantly refers to the sort of Flash Gordon serials, doesn't he, that he used to watch as a child and stuff like that. It wasn't a marketable vehicle at all, was it? I think no. the studios were looking they could maybe make a couple of pounds or a couple of dollars on it, but no one could have predicted, really, the success that Star Wars was going to be. But, and like but, you say, but, when you're looking at merchandising, was there any film merchandising before Star Wars? <laughs> really? Well, this is it, isn't it? I mean, with, 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 was there was there some sort of like was there some sort of downturn in in revenue from this from the films that were that were doing the business at the time, or were they were they going strong? Because I'm trying to think of a way that he could have predicted it's time. You know, there's a new genre coming. It's time for a change. The only thing I can think is that maybe audiences were growing tired of what was there, and, and that you know there was 
perhaps it was it was getting diluted with with so much of the same because it it was an absolute. I mean, it was it was the biggest genius stroke of of his career, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It, it's, I think, like you know, the the landscape of cinema always reflects the sort of political and and the global situation at the time. Obviously, in the mid seventies, America was coming out of the tail end of the Vietnam War. You know, a lot of these films in the seventies were very sort of cynical, and they were very, you know, there was a lot of distrust about the government, and you know, a lot of conspiracy thrillers. People had, had I think, such a gutsful of all of this political unrest that Lucas just tapped into this thing, this sort of need, and one of the biggest genius strokes of Star Wars is the fact that as you mentioned Neil all of those science fiction films are it's always stuff like the Andromeda strain where you have like a virus breaking out or you have mankind going to another planet like in you know Forbidden Planet you know meeting strange aliens and and basically any other number of stories which Star Trek had covered in his three-year run but Star Wars was it's not science fiction it's like it's science fantasy and for a start you know you always think of science fiction being in the future but as that opening title thing says this is a long time ago in a galaxy far yeah. far away yeah i think it's it's tapped into that thing the same sort of thing that we see nowadays with like game of thrones and that mm. where you look at it and you think you is this like a historical sort of period or is it just a completely time a completely different dimension to anything that we're aware of yeah and by setting it in, in a completely different galaxy completely removed from human culture that just basically gave him carte blanche to make this complete escapist entertainment mm. And, you know, it, it took from everything. It took from Flash Gordon to Robin Hood. They were, they were just elements of, of just fun. But at the same time, the film took itself completely seriously. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, look, you know, you've got to look at the first film. I was working in, in tandem with Joseph Campbell, really, to do The Hero's Journey. Yeah. You know, and like you say, the sort of influence of like the sort of samurai films as well that he'd taken on board. He'd taken, he'd taken bits and pieces. I think quite often, I, I don't want to be too harsh, but sometimes I think, you know, we could easily say George Lucas is a genius who tapped into the vein of something that no one else had seen. Or was he just extremely lucky and just captured lightning in a bottle? I d- yeah. Now, I've been thinking about this a lot, Neil. And you've got certain films you look at and you think, yeah, they are unique. That's the first time I've seen anything like that. Um, you know, certainly plot-wise, there, there are certain films you think, Jesus, I've just never seen anything like that before. But then so many filmmakers have cribbed off other filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. You know, look, look, how much, look how much Brian De Palma has taken from Hitchcock. And he's done it yeah. unashamedly. Tarantino's done the same. He's borrowed from spaghetti westerns to Hong Kong action cinema. He's, he's taken from everywhere. And that's what that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying with Lucas. It'd be easy to sort of just put him in one one bracket of like incredibly lucky, or another bracket of incredible genius. And I think the truth is probably somewhere closer in the middle, really. To be honest, yeah, I think he had a certain amount of luck, but I also think he had a sort of a unique, sort of visionary, sort of eye for what he wanted to see. Yeah, I, I think that George Lucas is a brilliant ideas man. Yeah. Yes, and if you look at you know when he he collaborated with Steven Spielberg on a subsequent Indiana Jones films. He came up with brilliant ideas and steered Spielberg away from, you know, like Spielberg wanted to do a sort of Bond type film, didn't he? Spielberg was the one with, with a sort of, if you see those um, backroom meetings, where it's him, I think it's Kasdan's there as well, isn't it? And they're sort of pitching ideas to each other. Spielberg's the one who's like, well, what about if we had aliens? What about if we had zombies? What about if, mm. you know, and sort of coming up with all these outlandish, outlandish things, whereas Lucas is the one who's more sort of reserved and pulling him back to yeah. the core of the Indiana Jones story that we know now. Mm. Yeah, so I think he's a great ideas man. I think where he does lay himself down is in the right inside of things. 
because that original Star Wars script went through so many revisions and some of the last minute revisions steered it away from being quite a different film. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, Luke Starkiller and you had Han Solo was like this was six foot green alien. Yeah. And there were so many things that were just changed quite drastically in between that sort of last but one script and the one he ended up shooting. You know, how the hell did he not end up just creating something quite laughable? But they were, they were already filming when he decided to kill Obi-Wan. They were, yeah. He wasn't actually sure if he wanted to carry on uh, the character throughout the three films. And then I think he was a case of, he was thinking, oh yeah, but you know, then to have uh, Alec Guinness stood by Princess Leia watching this battle seems like a bit of like selling the character short. But at the same time, yeah. he was too old to be, you know, flying an X-Wing against the, yeah. the Death Star. That, that, that is a crucial decision about the, the you know, that, that would have a huge impact on the story if, the, if Obi-Wan had remained the story would have been so different mm. and and that and that goes in you know that sh- that perhaps identifies how how unplanned um, the trilogy and in fact right. the saga was because for, for a decision like that to be made you know when they're already filming it i mean it's easy to sit and judge isn't it because we're, we're not filmmakers i'm not just you know i'm not a script writer we don't work in film but it, it just it just seems it seems crazy that those kind of decisions you you would imagine that they'd be far far planned out, yeah. uh, far more in advance. But, and we, you know, you know, we have got obviously, guys, the, the gift of hindsight, and we are looking back at this, you know, quite analytical. Yeah. But yeah, you you've got to ask yourself, like, Christ, was it luck or was it just him being in the right mindset and thinking, right, I've got all these little pe- bits and pieces here; they need to be assembled this way. And I don't know, he just had his ability to get things together eventually. Yeah, and we're, pr- and we're probably doing a disservice to the people that surrounded him, like you mentioned, the lads. You know, so you we mentioned Joseph Campbell. You know, there's there's a uh, you know, and some of the team you have working with him. I would imagine there was a lot of sort of input from outside sources. Not perhaps didn't have a direct say in it, but had an influence or a sway over him. Mm. Oh, it's it's a, it's a massive team. You can see, you know, you watch any of the documentaries about it, and you can see it is a huge team effort. Yeah, and I think had he been had he been left to his own devices, we would have got a vastly different trilogy, possibly a prequel trilogy, but we might talk about that again. And obviously, we mentioned Spielberg, and in 1975, Spielberg did, in many ways, launch the blockbuster. But then, if you go back to, you know, after that, the following year, 1976, was there then a big follow-up blockbuster that year? Certainly not I could think of. And again, with Jaws, Jaws is, you know, like you say, it's the sort of the, the birth of the sort of summer blockbuster. Mm. But it's also a very different film in its tone. I mean, all right, Jaws did have, you know, several sequels too many. But really speaking, could have been a self-contained, beautiful film on its own, couldn't it? It's not, it could have, yeah. It's, when we look at sort of universe building and franchise building, I think this is the first film that ever embraced that and gave people it hope. Is. Yeah. You know, a, a new hope, I almost mm. say then, that it mm-hmm. you know, they could lead on to be a series, like, you know? But going back to Ladd, Alan, Alan Ladd Jr., he was kind of like Lucas's only real ally at Fox as the board of directors had put pressure on Ladd to shut down the production of the original Star Wars film. As they saw all of this money being spent on this silly little science fiction film, Lucas had previously been the victim of studio control on his first uh, main theatrical feature, THX 1138, and then again in 1973 on American Graffiti when, you know, it doesn't seem like much now, but the studio stepped in and they cut five minutes of footage out against Lucas's wishes. But obviously Lucas, as we now know, being a guy that likes to be, you know, kind of a bit of a hands-on guy, even though he only lost five minutes of footage, he didn't like that. He didn't like having final cut and complete directorial control. So then Star Wars goes on to become the highest grossing film of all time, Fox have obviously then approached Lucas for a sequel. And then it was at that point that Lucas, wanting to not relinquish control of any subsequent Star Wars films, decided to finance the sequel entirely himself 
with Fox being on distributing duties. Empire Strikes Back had an initial budget of $25 million, which was more than twice that of Star Wars. Now, I think one of the key things he did there was, because he didn't particularly enjoy directing the first Star Wars film, he also then wanted to focus on building up this little empire of his own, pardon the pun, you know, Skywalker Ranch. Uh, He also wanted to focus on his relationship with Marsha Lucas, his wife, and, you know, having children and all that. He decided to sort of step aside from the production. He wasn't as involved in the writing, and certainly, obviously, he decided to hand over directorial duties. But with regards to the script, he's, he's brought on Lawrence Kasdan and Lee Brackett to write the script for Empire, and that script was written in about six weeks. Now, from what I can gather, a lot of Lee Brackett's initial script ideas that were quite drastically different things like Darth Vader not actually being Luke's father Anakin Skywalker actually be coming back as a force ghost and training Luke and all of these sort of ideas the Lee Brackett came up with were kind of dumped and I think a lot of the stuff we end up with maybe I'm wrong but it seems to me a lot of that was down to changes made by a combination of Lawrence Kasdan and Lucas but I think a lot of the success of Empire Script does come down to Lawrence Kasdan. I think so, yeah. I think I'd read a slightly sort of different version of events there that um, Brackett had worked with Lucas on the first draft of the script and mm-hmm. that um, he wasn't happy, basically, with the, the direction it was taking. But unfortunately, I think she died of cancer, didn't she? Before she did, they could yeah. Do any rewrites, yeah. yeah. Mm. So I think Kasdan was brought on just on the back of, um, I think he just started doing, uh, he just started writing readers with him or something like that, was yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. But I think that I, I, I think depending on where you go online and what what year the documentary is that you're watching, it all seems to be very kind of mixed up. What actually happened? Some say that that George Lucas's script went out the window and Kasdan wrote it very very quickly, but kind of almost from scratch. Yeah. Um. I think we're never we're never going to know we what what the score ultimately what uh, what happened, but nobody can deny that um, Lawrence Kasdan's input, however large or small it was. Was definitely uh, definitely the right thing. Definitely, yeah. I, I'm never going to take for a second. I know a lot of people, like you say, you'll find it easy to bash Lucas. I'm not going to do that because if you're going to credit anyone for creating Star Wars, it's George Lucas. Simple as that. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, without a shadow of a doubt. But I definitely think a lot of the success of Empire, Empire Strikes Back is the film out of all of the main Star Wars films that George Lucas was involved in, and I will have to mention the prequels, obviously, this is the one that he probably stepped back from the most and had least involvement in, because obviously he, he brought on Irving Kirshner. Now, yeah. Kirshner... It's also the film that really made Star Wars. Because if this, film hadn't, if this film hadn't been a success, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be talking about no. the Star Wars saga. Now, yeah. we'd be maybe talking about Star Wars itself, we, you know, It'd be one good film, wouldn't it? Yeah, one brilliant, successful film that was followed up by a not very good sequel. So yeah, George Lucas, he'd met Irving Kirshner at the University of Southern California where Lucas was a student and Kirshner was teaching. And Lucas had felt that Kirshner was an amazing talent who had been overlooked by the film and television industry. I think by this point, I think probably that the main film that Kirshner was known for was probably The Eyes of Laura Mars. You know, by this point, I can't think of anything else that, that he had done that was held in that kind of high regard. Kirshner himself was initially reluctant as he felt that the first film had been so successful that any sequel couldn't hope to be as good as the original Star Wars film. His agent fortunately felt otherwise and told him to accept Lucas's offer, which he did. As far as shoots of Star Wars films go, principal photography on The Empire Strikes Back lasted over 180 days, which is the longest shoot of any Star Wars film. The film went over budget by $10 million and it went over schedule 
and all the money that Lucas had made from Star Wars was now poured into Empire after the bank who had loaned Lucas the money for the initial budget had withdrawn the loan. So then Lucas decided to go cap in hand to Fox and say, look, you know, I'm going to need some help here. And I think then it was the subsequent deal was drafted up between Lucas and Ladd where Lucas still retained the rights to Empire Strikes Back and any subsequent sequels and the merchandising, the Fox board of directors actually came down quite harshly on Ladd and said, look, you were too easy on him, you gave him too good a deal. And it was at that point that Alan Ladd Jr. actually walked away from Fox and, and that was it for him. He was pretty much done there. But again, if it wasn't for the fact that he was just, he had faith in Lucas and you know the, the, this other film that he was making, that, you know, the Empire Strikes Back was able to carry on and have as little studio interference as it, as it did have. So should we go into the film itself, guys? Yeah, why not? Let's start. That, that <laughs> opening crawl. Well, I got to say one thing first of all before we get into that. Go on. Uh, for, for the rewatch, um, I watched it on Disney Plus, and I was pleased to see the Fox fanfare back, because it, since since Disney um, bought Lucasfilm, whenever the film has been uh, broadcast in the UK, certainly um, the Fox fanfare has been gone from it. But now, obviously, since Disney have bought Fox, it's back. And it is like it is iconic. I was going to say, do you know if I hear that fanfare, I instantly think of Star Wars. Yeah. To which I'm ashamed to say, right, like you. I have rewatched on Disney Plus. I didn't even notice that the, the Fox fanfare was back. I, I probably because yeah. it's just maybe if it hadn't been there, I probably would have noticed. But it, like you say, it's just yeah, it's part and parcel of the film, and you can't take that away. So the opening crawl is a dark time for the rebellion. Although the Death Star has been destroyed, Imperial troops have driven the rebel forces from the hidden base and pursued them across the galaxy. Evading the dreaded Imperial Starfleet, a group of freedom fighters led by Luke Skywalker has established a new secret base on the remote ice world of Hoth. The evil Lord Darth Vader, obsessed with finding young Skywalker, has dispatched thousands of remote probes into the far reaches of space. So it's quite simple really, isn't it? But when you dig it apart, it establishes stuff that at this point, coming into the film blind, first time, we don't know about Luke and Vader's relationship. Mm. Why all of a sudden, bearing in mind the minimal contact they had in the first film, is Darth Vader obsessed with Luke Skywalker? Now, obviously, Neil, we've mentioned several times on the podcast that the opening to the original Star Wars is just one of the greatest opening scenes to any film ever. Yeah, now, how do you go? Uh, how do you go on top as big and grand and bold an opening as that? Well, Lucas had the genius idea that you don't. He actually went the other way. Yeah, we do have a you know another jaw-dropping shot of a Star Destroyer. But it's nothing to sort of grab you and say, this is Star Wars, because you're already in Star Wars. And he's saving all of his big guns for later on. Nothing about this film seems to be Lucas going, like, all out to impress, or, sorry, even Irving Kirshner going all out to impress from the start. It maintains a certain tone, and it runs with it. You know, you've got those, those probe droids. You know, everything flows from one thing to another perfectly. Then, obviously, we've had Tatooine in the first film, A Desert Planet, and then we've now got this remote ice world of Hoth. The Hoth segment, guys. I think it's great because straight away you're establishing how big the universe is. I mean, one of the sort of slights that I've got 
the only other Star Wars films is they focus basically on Skywalkers, doesn't it? Yeah. But this this is like straight away giving us a sort of sense of how big this universe is. Like you say, we've got, you know, we've been to Tatooine, which is primarily like a sort of desert planet. We've been on the Death Star, which is like a sort of robotic-type place, if you mm-hmm. like. But now we're sort of presented with this like sort of Antarctic army in space. Yeah, kind of like the, you know, the anti-Tatooine. Like how many times in subsequent Star Wars films... Have we had that thing of we're seeing something familiar and they're playing on nostalgia and it's almost like groan inducing. But and I know it's easy to say because this was the first sequel. So anything different that they were going to show us was always going to come across as fresh. And I think that's probably the main advantage that the original trilogy has got over subsequent films that even by Return of the Jedi, it was still able to show us situations and stuff which are fresh and... Well, we end up on a forest moon, don't we? In, exactly, in the yeah. Jedi. yeah. So it's given us, like, you know, another element, if you like, isn't it? I think it, it, very, it very much feels like that, you know, as much as as much as Lucas will say in interviews that, that this is one this is one book, this, you know, Star Wars is chapter one, Empire is chapter two. In his mind, he never, he didn't know that he was going to get a sequel. So yeah. so Star Wars ends, doesn't it? it you know, obviously it's it, it's picked up in the sequel, but, but the story itself for that, that small story is told and and if there were as you've said before if there were no if there weren't any sequels that was a nice little film and it would have been nice to find out what happened to those characters but it, it had a beginning a middle and an end yeah whereas with this it feels very much like it's a slower pace it's a more detailed pace because it feels now like this for we, we now know that the story is told certainly over the next two films so there's a slower pace of, uh, sort of to it and it feels as though it, it, it you know there is a, a bigger story being told now and as you say, you know, there is the contrast of Hoth versus Tatooine and what have you. But I think that, you know, it's 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 a more confident film, I think. Yeah. It's more confident in the in the characters it's established, and it's more confident in the story that it's telling. It's no longer testing the waters. It is in as much as it is a, it's, a, it's a sequel, and there's always there's always a concern with the sequel. Lucas, from his point of view, he he had confidence in his characters in the fir- you know in the first film. He maintained um, ownership and, and and what have you, and and, and now he. He wants to make that film. You know, he's brought on the people that he wants to, that he, that he thinks is going to be able to do it for him. But we've got a, we've got a far more, I think, confident, uh, established roster of characters. And, and now, you know, the, the audience are already invested and we can go straight into the story. And it's what you say about the characters here, which I think that's where Irvin Kirshner was the right guy for this, because he came in with the right attitude. He wanted to inject a bit of humour into things. But what he yeah. also wanted to do was just bolster these characters. Like, straight away... You know, we've got Luke and Han, they're out on Hoth, they're, you know, doing a you know a regular patrol. Luke obviously then gets attacked by the Wampa, uh, which, as much as I've never seen any outright confirmation, it does seem like that was done purposely to obviously mask the fact that I think in January 77, Mark Hamill had a really nasty motorbike accident. Yeah. When I was a kid, I never understood why Luke Skywalker, look, Luke Skywalker looked so different in the first film and then so different in the subsequent films. But then, obviously, it was because of this bike accident. His nose and everything, it looks he does look quite a bit different. And, you know, inserting that Wamper attack as a way to get around that, little stroke of genius. Yeah. I think it's one of those, I think that's one of those it's sort of almost urban legends that goes around, but I've never actually seen uh, Lucas or anyone connected to Star Wars no, agree with that. I agree. I, I've never seen anyone make a, a, you know, an outright admission to that. Maybe they didn't want to do it because they didn't want to offend Mark Hamill. But, you know, straight away, Kirshner chucks us back into things. We've got, you know, the interplay between Han and Chewie. More importantly, then, we've got the relationship between Han Solo and Princess Leia. Kirshner wanted to inject a bit of comedy. C-3PO, I think, you know, this is the film where... I know C-3PO is often seen as one of the most irritating Star Wars characters, but this is the best that C-3PO has ever been in a film. 
this is perhaps this like you say when you mention characters this is perhaps the one where he actually displays a character rather than being an annoyance yeah, yeah. In a lot of, in a lot of the other films he can come across sometimes it's almost as if an n3po says something that annoys yeah. someone or you know whatever but in this one he actually does have a little bit of sort of like side humor to it and it? it does actually have a bit of character attached it does, to it it does so obviously Luke Skywalker is missing and without doing much they actually highlight this bond now between Luke and Han. Yeah, because we don't get a sort of indication of how long it's been really, do we? We don't know how long. No. You know, it could, it could have been three months or it could have been three years. Well, it, two, I think it actually, um, in subsequent like, you know, expanded universe sort of things and like Star Wars encyclopedias and God knows what, I think it's been established that in between Star Wars and Empire, three years had passed and then in between oh, Empire and, <laughs> in, in, in between Empire and Jedi, a year had passed. Or roughly a year. Yeah, so yeah, okay. three years have passed. We're just given scant information from the opening crawl. The fact that the rebels obviously were they had to leave Yavin four and, and have had to go elsewhere. There's a lot of fill in the blanks as to what's happened in between. Well, we sort of get a little breadcrumb, don't we? With Ham mentions to Leia, then he has to leave. Yeah, um, the, 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 the bounty because... hunter we bumped into on Old Mandel. So it just shows that there's loads of yeah. yeah, me, and Luke, yeah me and Luke have been on this little side mission. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. yeah. And like even like little things like that. It, it's one line. But it, it just gives you that that depth of character, the fact that other things have happened in between. We ain't gonna signpost that, we're not gonna ram it down your throat, but yeah, it's been a couple of years since you know the you were last with us and a lot has happened. And Luke's Luke's status within the rebellion is very much elevated. That you know, he's he's right at the front there, isn't he? Yeah. He's you know, obviously obviously I mean he, he had massive um massive rewards for, for being the pilot that destroyed the Death Star. It's that thing yeah. of you could die out on that. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and he is a, very much the face of the rebellion now, isn't he? And also, yeah. as, as we see in the in the Wampa cave, you know, he's now moving objects with with the force when he grabs the lightsaber. So, as he had more Jedi training off, maybe the Force Ghost of Obi Wan. You know, we don't know. I was going to say because although he's sort of semi concussed when he first sees the Force Ghost, he doesn't. He's not. Oh my God, Ben! What are you doing here? He calls up yeah. to Ben, and Ben comes to him. So, yeah. you know, like you say, over the preceding years, perhaps he's been sort of having little conversations with Ben throughout. Like, of course, yeah. But it's really difficult to analyze a film that's been so much poured over mm. and, and 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 that's expanded universe and everything. I, I just accepted that Darth Vader um, was obsessed with tracking down Luke Skywalker because Luke Skywalker was the rebel who, mm-hmm. who blew up the Death Star. It's hard to think now whether or not you, you... I think you did just accept it. I certainly did just accept it. I'm fairly sure. But that that is enough, isn't it? There's no there's no need to get into all of the, the, the family history and everything at that time because you just accept that he's clearly going to be someone whose name is going to be known within the Empire mm. for being the one who did that. Um, and is now leading the you know for the first time the rebellion their first proper victory over the empire. Well, like and you say, we're going to have to yeah. bring him down. Han Solo is no longer this roguish pirate; he's now General Solo. Watching watch this time round, it, it sort of struck me that Han was a little bit sort of almost manipulative with Leia. He's like, "I'm going, but I'm not going. But if you tell me, you know, if you tell me you love me, or if you tell me how you feel about me, maybe I'll stay." And but it's it's almost a case of I think that Han at this point has finally found a home. Yeah, and it's you know he sort of like just wants someone to confirm it for him. Yeah, and he's he's massively insecure. His background is like this sort of space pirate, and she is an actual princess. You know, out of all the main three characters, she is by far the, the you know the strongest. She hasn't got the force to back her up. It, it's down to the fact that she is just this brilliant leader 
great with people. She's just a, a powerful character in herself. And I think, you know, obviously Han Solo's thinking, like, is she ever going to love me? And, and that's why you've got this sort of friction between them. It's brilliant the way it's done, the dialogue between them. It's like a, it's almost like a screwball comedy without the laughs. Do they love each other? Do they hate each other? And, you know, obviously, ultimately, you know, it's quite obvious that they do love each other. It's, it's, it's exposing his vulnerabilities, isn't it? He, he wants her to say it first kind of thing. He wants yeah. her to kind of, he, he doesn't want to be the one to kind of put himself on the line because he's this, because he's this rogue, because he's this, this, this hard tough guy who doesn't have it you know doesn't have any attachments all the rest of it he doesn't want to be the person to put it wear his heart on his sleeve and then she rejects him because he's not in control of that situation she's clearly the hardest of the two of them because she's you know she's left him hanging um, on and on kind of thing just to put it in context was he actually leaving anyway he's saying he's going to go but Chewie's still repairing the falcon yeah, yeah, yeah. and Chewie's taking a long time yeah <laughs> he's t- taking a long time isn't he either he wasn't going or Chewie sabotaging his attempt mm-hmm. to go in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And that, that scene where C-3PO is talking to Leia about the prospects of Han and Luke making it back, Carrie Fisher doesn't utter a word of dialogue, but her performance in just a look, she's just brilliant. She doesn't put a foot wrong throughout this film. Not that she did in no. the original. I know, obviously, in the original, you know, people joke about the fact that her accent fluctuated from almost sounded English to mid-Atlantic to then full-on American. But in this film, Carrie Fisher is just outstanding. Yeah, and I think, like you say, with the, with the accent thing, I, the one explanation I've always heard is that she's got a sort of regal speaking voice that she puts on. Yeah. You know, when, you know, when we initially see her, she's almost doing a formal sort of accent, yeah. and then she becomes more relaxed. Yeah, so yeah. that works. Of course, that, that works. works as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, We've all got our public voice and our telephone voice, etc., haven't we? Well, you know, well we're like doing this, them now. We're doing them now. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was. But, <laughs> <laughs> but like you say, with, with Leia, even then, when, you know, all she has to do, she obviously doesn't want him to go, but the sort of reasoning that she gives is so sort of militarized this you know you're a good leader you're a good general people are behind you and and it's again with luke as well you know if luke goes missing obviously she's going to be she's losing a friend she's losing someone she loves she keeps it to herself she doesn't actually utter anything like sky was saying it's just the look is is written the fear is etched in her eyes isn't it but she's been brought up. That's the world that she's been brought up in. She's she's been a public figure since she was since sort of, she was an infant, hasn't she? So she's, yeah, she's th- that is probably all that she's known. And, and emotions and 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 that they're very much left behind closed doors. However, we we do get the sort of polar opposite of that when Han realizes that Luke's missing when he you know when he jumps onto that tauntaun and they tell him he's going to freeze that the, the, the freeze to death before he reaches yeah. him. I'll see you in hell. Yeah, see you in hell. One of the yeah. coolest lines Brilliant. ever. Yeah, yeah. I actually used that when I was going to the car wash the other week. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, I'm just going to pop over to the car wash, and she said, Oh no, come on, let's do this, let's do that. And I said, Oh, it would be five minutes. She said, oh, I'll take you longer than that. Then I'll see you in hell. <laughs> Just left me blankly. <laughs> so then Han Solo finds Luke Skywalker. You've got that great scene of him cutting the tauntaun open with Luke's lightsaber. It looks fucking disgusting, really, doesn't it? Yeah. I thought they smelled bad. Honey, I Brilliantly redone in a Family Guy episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're edging then into the. Oh, in fact, before we get to the Battle of Hoth, you've got a scene which I always guessed. Kind of like made fun of when you later find out the relationship between Luke and Leia is after Luke recovers and Han Solo is is trying it on again with Princess Leia. She doesn't like how cocky and like upfront he's being. So then she plants a kiss on Luke's face and people are like, oh God, really? If George Lucas knew at that point they were going to be brother and sister, why did he have her do that? Well, at that point, she doesn't know that he is her brother. Oh. So it, it all fits within the character and what the characters... You say people laugh at it, but people lose their shit over this. They yeah. do. It, 
I can't get my head around it. I just think to myself exactly what you just said. In the, in that moment, he doesn't know she's his his sister. She doesn't know he's a brother, and she's doing it to make Han jealous. It's just I just can't believe how often people really really lose their shit over this. I really can't. If it had been alluded to in any way before that, then you could perhaps write into the the sort of like the conspiracy theory that Lucas didn't know at that time. But like you say, if both characters didn't know, if nothing in the story has been presented to us to suggest that, I mean, at this stage, if he went, oh, Darth Vader's my dad, we'd have gone, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, also, there's nothing to suggest that. We're talking 40 years ago as well. We're talking a long time ago where 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 social kind of opinions has very much changed. And there might have been a part of George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan were thinking, do you know what? They're going to be brother and sister. This is hilarious. The other side of it is, like we're saying, this is a fairy tale in space. And I've compared it to the sort of setting of a Game of Thrones. Perhaps it's just not as frowned upon in a galaxy far, far away. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe we've got it wrong. They don't know their brother and sister. And it is ultimately just a kiss on the lips. Come on. It's not like, it's not like yeah. she gave him a fucking hand job. <laughs> that was that was in the uh, that was in the redux. <laughs> so I, was thinking, oh, I'm take that bit I honestly thought you were going to call it. I, I honestly thought you were going to say she didn't give him a hand solo. Then, <laughs> oh, <laughs> the rebels have picked up one of these probe droids, and you know they send Han and Chewie out to explore. Yeah, we find out. Oh, look, okay, looks like the Empire know we're here now, and then we cut to what's been going on with the Empire and Darth Vader in the three years between Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back. Is it at this point, guys, that we should mention John Williams's music? Yeah, well, definitely. From the moment, from the moment those probe droids go down, it's just I can't find the words to describe no. how well his music just elevates the story and elevates what you can see on screen. We've spoken a lot, haven't we, about film music privately and also on the podcast. And you know, obviously recently we did the Jerry Goldsmith episode where a comparison was made to Jerry Goldsmith and other composers like John Williams. John Williams often being the one that's held in the highest regard by cinephiles of a certain generation. You just cannot deny that there are a handful of films which John Williams did the score for which are just iconic in a way the few other film scores are. In fact, I'd say pound for pound, he's probably got the, the highest success rate of iconic film scores of any other film composer. Superman, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Jaws. That's just a name for. No, I was going to say, if you look in between the two films, he did Superman. Yeah, in 1978, yeah. Not only did he sort of better his work on this film, in between those two films, mm. he'd done, you know, another iconic... And I think, you know, like you say with Jerry Goldsmith, he's a great composer. He's a fantastic composer. But he's often a composer. That later on, I find out that he was the composer. He hasn't got the same sort of iconic sort of... You know, that's not a slight against him. It's, you know, it's horses for courses. What, you know, pays you money, you takes your choice. Like, I think with John Williams, he does the, he does the tunes that you sang in the, the playground as a kid. Mm-hmm. So obviously the reason I mentioned that is, you know, chronologically going through the film, we get to the Imperial March at this point. At the point, I can't remember the point in my Star Wars fandom, I actually realised the Imperial March was introduced in this film and wasn't in the original, because it's always been, for me, a part of Star Wars. This is what I said before about the, the original trilogy. I think the most distinctive as a kid was the Return was Return of the Jedi, and that was possibly because of the Ewoks, maybe, I don't know. But, but generally it was all, and as you say, I think however old I was when I realised Imperial March wasn't, didn't come in until Empire Strikes Back, I think I was, I must be quite shocked about it, because as you say, it's so intrinsically Star Wars, you can't believe that it wasn't in the first film. But let's look at the themes he introduced in this film. The Imperial March which is just unbelievably iconic, one of the greatest pieces of film music ever made. You've got Yoda's theme, which is just beautiful. You've got mm. the Han and Leia love theme, which yeah. I've never seen put a better effect than actually in the, the Force Awakens teaser trailer. 
or, or, or one of the yeah. you know, the trailer where John Williams actually reused that theme. Oh, and goosebumps. my God, it was just it was just goosebumps. You've got the Battle of Hoth. That is a piece of music that is just unique to that scene. And then arguably, I think the greatest piece of music in this entire film is the asteroid chase. Yes. The other week, I spent two hours plus talking in detail about music and trying to describe it in as coherent a fashion as I could. But I have not got the words to to express how absolutely phenomenal this film score is. I, I, I would say, hands down, this is one of the greatest film scores ever. And that's including all the other great scores that John Williams did. It's just fucking perfect. Do you know, it's 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 like... Well, it is another language, isn't it? It's one of it those is. things, I think... And, and, and only... That's right, yeah. Perfectly put. It's another language. It's hard to describe to someone. There's a handful of people across the world who, who can understand and can speak fluently in that language. Yeah. To, to be able to hear all of those different instruments in an orchestra, to be able to plot out... To be able to plot out what instruments are going to come in where, where, you know, the intensity... All, all of the... The, everything that goes into writing an, an orchestral theme is absolutely phenomenal. But when you're also a piece of music on its own is something. A piece of music with words is something else. But when you're doing it, two visuals that have already been recorded that you haven't had any involvement with, and what you're actually doing, you're given the job of these impressive visuals that probably at the time didn't have all of the special effects in place, and you've then got to elevate that and give the the audience the feeling that they're in it based on the music that you're conducting. Yeah. I think we can all sort of say, well, you know, we'd have a good idea what it would take to be a good writer. We can understand the process of directing and, and not that we could necessarily do it ourselves, but you can appreciate it in a, in a kind of yeah. a linear fashion and understand what goes into it. The the, the composers, it just blows my mind. And, and I'm abs- in absolute awe of people like John Williams because I think they are absolute geniuses. And I think you've got three sort of categories with, like you say, with music and with film composers. You can either have a piece of music that is jarring and takes you away from it. That happens very rarely. More often than not, there's a piece of music in the background that you don't even notice. It's the very special ones, like the Williams, like the Goldsmiths, who can introduce something that can actually you know, grab you and pull you further into the film. It's very rare throughout this film that there isn't music playing, that there isn't music playing in the background. There's always a very, even if it's very, very quiet, there's mm-hmm. very few scenes where there isn't, where there isn't anything. It's, it's purely dialogue and sort of Foley and all the rest of it. Yeah. It is very much, it's, it's, there's always something, almost always music playing in the background. It just never gets in the way, does it? Not at all, not at all. So obviously we're reintroduced now to this this huge Imperial fleet and just, just the balls of it, the fact that you've got, okay, we've got lots of Star Destroyers. Wow, holy shit, this is like the full strength of the Empire. And all of a sudden, they're engulfed in this huge shadow and then we see the fucking Executor, Darth yeah. Vader's Super Star Destroyer. Oh. I mean, come on, he had to have a Super Star Destroyer, didn't he? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that ultra cool fucking TIE fighter in the first film, but then he's got his own Star Destroyer, and it is epic. That in itself sort of shows you straight away the Vader. I mean, in the first film, he's kind of a lackey to Tarkin, to mm. Tarkin really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now he's in control, like, you know, now he owns now he owns the fleet, as far as we know at this time. Because yeah. the Emperor's only given, like, a one-line sort of throwaway line in, the, in Star Wars, isn't he? Mm-hmm. So at this stage, going into it blind, I mean, it's easy, like I say, when we're looking back now on the sort of lore that surrounds Star Wars, but this time, we're now seeing that Darth Vader is the Empire. Yeah. And that ship is basically, like you say, it's a case of, all right, yeah, you blew you know, you know, blew up the Death Star, but look at this now. Look at what I've got instead. Yeah. One thing I actually finally realised is that I think that Darth Vader might actually have a rebel sympathiser on his ship. That scene where you've got Admiral Ozzel... He's basically trying to get Vader off the scent of what is clearly a fucking shield generator. 
<laughs> one of the Imperial droids, probe droids, has found this thing that clearly is is not uh, you know it, it's not natural. It, it's man made, and they would know the technology of their time. They would know that yeah, it's it's a, it's a rebel shield generator. Why is Admiral Ozel so adamant that? Now, Lord Vader, this is nothing we need to worry about. There's thousands of uh, you know uncharted sectors and blah de blah. What's he doing? Is it? Yeah, yeah, but it's it's kind of a running theme, isn't it? You know, it's like when the droids escape in the first film. They ah, it's probably yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't don't bother firing on them. Yeah, it's a waste of lasers. Yeah, it's a waste of lasers. Yeah, the arrogance of the the arrogance of the of the um, the Imperial officers, isn't it? But I just don't I don't understand the fact that Ozzel then, when when uh, Captain Peart is, Vader goes his way and says, yeah, the rebels are there. And then Admiral Ozzel gives him a look like he's like, right, I'm going to fuck you up later. He's like, well, what's your, <laughs> what, is, what is your beef, mate? If you'd gone along with it, you could have taken the credit for him and found the rebels. Yeah. My only thing is he must be a rebel sympathizer. But yeah, you know, all of these little, you know, bit part actors playing them. And you've got... Julian Glover playing General Veers, who would obviously later crop up in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade as Walter Donovan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, obviously, what we're leading up to now is, well, we spoke about it before on the podcast, um, the Battle of Hoth. What can we say about that? beautiful isn't it i mean you know you've got you've got those those amazing sort of shots of of of, of the landscape with the matte painting and, and, and everything like that and it just looks it just so it looks so realistic and stunning and then you've got just this i mean it, it's an end of film battle at the start of the film isn't it, it? Is. it is yeah. it's a set piece it it's you know you you see get the first shot of the attacks um through the viewfinders so you kind of you know what the hell are they kind of what you know what, what are they coming and then you get the proper shot of them it may well have been my number one choice possibly when we were talking when we did the list of um top special effects sequences yeah. it's for, for model for, for model work i mean it is phenomenal it's, it's and stop motion animation was used very infrequently throughout the first Star Wars film. It was basically the um, the three D chess game. Yeah, yeah. Every, everything else was done was was model work, motion control. So stop motion or, or go motion, as it was called, and uh, Phil Tippett was not so much a dying art, but 
it, it wouldn't have been the immediately your go-to sort of special effect technique to do when you're doing a scene that isn't done with a background of space where you can hide matte lines and, and yeah. things like that. It's done on a stark white location obviously you know when they were shooting in fins in norway they were shooting all of these background plates which would have been used then they were also doing a lot of of you know model landscapes in the workshop which we were filming again in stark bright daylight mm-hmm. this is cutting edge visual effects at the time now star wars had incredible effects and the only film i can think of that possibly eclipsed it before that was douglas crumble's work on 2001 in 68 but this film I can't even imagine what it must have been like being sat there in 1980 and seeing this for the first time because it doesn't hold back on anything. And it still looks really good now, let's be honest. Oh. Well, you see, the, the, I mean, the test is when you've got the, the sequence where by when Luke rolls out from underneath the foot coming and when he, when he fires up the, the hook and, and goes up to it, it feels like he's doing that to an at-at, you yeah, know? It, right. it's, it's very very well mixed between the, the obviously the, the full-size cast with, with their props and that. It's, it's very well edited. It, it's incredibly well done. It really, really is. Thank you for using at-at. <laughs> yes, thank you. It's fucking at-at. It's not A-T-A-T. Oh, or Imperial Walker or anything else you well, want to call, call it. Well, they even call Imperial. In fact, I think when, you know, I asked Phil Tippett directly, didn't I? He said, what are they yeah. called, Phil? And he said, Imperial Walkers. Or, or We call them walkers. But obviously, you know, working in a workshop day and night for months on end, he's going to have to have a shorthand word for them. But we're going to call exactly. them at-ats. At-ats. Quite a few episodes back, we were lucky enough to interview Phil Tippett, who was the, you know, the mastermind behind all of this go motion special effects and the Battle of Hoth just wouldn't have been possible without him. So please go back and listen to that episode if you hasn't. He's one of the greatest special effects artists working, period. This whole sequence, it's like a symphony. Everything comes together perfectly and you've got the conductor just bringing in everything. They use moments of quiet because some of my favourite scenes in the Battle of Hoth are the bits which set it up, what I call the Zulu scenes, where you've got all of these uh, rebel troops setting up the game ready in the trenches and you've just got you know the music kind of dies down and you've got all of these beautiful shots of landscape and then you've got it boom that thud of those feet of the walkers mm-hmm. like you say rich you've got that shot off in the distance it cuts back then into the rebel base with everyone rallying around you know luke and you know his co-pilot dak jumping into the snow speeders dak's gonna take out the empire on his own yeah he's, yeah. he's dead <laughs> he's dak is dead you know he's dead but holy shit that first shot where you see those four or five at-ats and they just start firing on the base from that point onwards, this is, for me, as perfect as cinema gets. This is not dialogue-driven. This is not character-driven. This is pure escapism and spectacle. But it's done in a way that I've never seen bettered. I was going to say, Anne, it's something that, on paper, if I said to you, and then we'll bring these huge robotic camel-like creatures, you'd have laughed at me. Yeah. It's like you say about people lending and people taking... If we look at sort of like Jurassic Park with the sort of T-Rex first footsteps, it's the same sort of impact. Yeah, yeah. That, sort of, that, that thundering yeah. sort of, doo, doo, no one quite knows what it is. And like Richard was saying, you, you know, they look off in the binoculars and there's almost like a sort of haze of what it is. Yeah. But these things are just awe-inspiring. And on top of the Millennium Falcon, this was the toy you wanted oh, when yeah. you were a kid. Oh you yeah. know, this was top of everyone's Christmas list, wasn't it? Yeah. I had an eight, I had an ATSC from the jumble sale. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I thought I'd say it for you. <laughs> no, I, no, 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 I had one of those, but it was called a Scout Walker. Yes, it was, yeah. And it also had Revenge of the Jedi on the box. 
Oh shit! And do you know what? If I still own that, I would probably be able to pay off my pay off my credit card bills now. <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah, that that is another example of what a te- what a collaboration this film was because you know without Phil Tippett and without the designers that were obviously George Lucas and and, and Lawrence Kasdan had what what they wanted in the story idea, but it took Phil Tippett to be able to say, well, this is what's going to work and this isn't what's going to work. So, you know, there's an idea. But in order to make that work and in order to make that look re- realistic or in order to make it look effective and do the job that they wanted to do, Phil Tippett's got a massive, above, you know, he isn't just building it. He's designing the mechanisms of it. He's designing how it's going to work. Yeah. So it just goes to show again the collaboration that happened on this film it, it, to, in order to bring it up to the, to, the, to the level that it is. And going back to Lawrence Kasdan and bringing humour into it, we're not just talking gags, you know, one-liners and all the rest of it. Let's let's not forget that the the way that they brought down the the atat was by tying his legs together and tripping it up. That's humour. You know, it isn't it isn't it isn't played for laughs, but it is it's a, it's a slapstick way of doing it. You know, it isn't it isn't played for laughs, but it isn't it, you know it's funny because they've tripped up this yeah. great big metal walking machine. Yeah, and that's one of the things that Kirshner wanted to do. He wanted to inject humour into the film, but subtle and never over the top. One of the questions I asked Phil Tippett in the episode it was episode thirty nine was how he gets these faceless characters, characters like Ed 209 and Robocop and the Atat Walkers, how he actually puts character in these things which are completely inhuman. And he does manage yeah. to do it. Like these little texts, these little things that they do. You know, there's the amazing shot of where one of the remaining Atats, just before he fires and shoots the shield generator, he actually turns his head to the side and shoots one of the snow speeders before he opens fire. And it's all done really quickly, but it's just like a little cool moment. Yeah, yeah. The whole sequence, much like all of Tippett's work and, and certainly all of the special effects work in this film, is just full of these cool little bits. And I always forget that, you know, the actual AT-STs, the, you know, the chicken walkers, they're actually in this as well. But, you know, they made the decision to, to go primarily with the AT-STs because they're just so huge and imposing. And then obviously, you know, the AT-STs will be brought back then in Return of the Jedi because they are, it's obviously, you know, a, a much smaller enemy they're fighting. But again, it gives us another sense of the Empire having a lot more strings to its bow, you know? It's another yeah. it's another weapon, it's another vehicle, it's another Star Destroyer, it's a bigger ship. But it also gives us the sense of, like, like Rich was saying, the way the Atats are brought down, the, the Rebels really are sort of just plucky fighters, aren't they? They're just yeah. scrappers, you know? So they haven't got anything, really. Straight away, the armor's, too, the armor's too strong to be pierced by blasters. So it's like they have to think on their feet and look, at, look how can we take down these huge yeah. things? yeah. Luke and, and Wedge and, and the rest of the Rebels are out fighting the Atats. Meanwhile, in Echo Base, Echo Base, what, like even the even the name of the Rebel Base is just <laughs> fucking cool. Just yeah, great so name cool. for great name for an album. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cut back to Han Solo is trying to get Princess Leia out on the Millennium Falcon with C three PO. Again, Rich, you said about the Empire Strikes Back taking his time. Now it does take his time with the characters in certain respects, but the first. 40 to 45 minutes of this film it just does not stop it just does not let up for breath this film doesn't let up for breath at any point the bits where luke slows down hannah later picking up the pace and vice versa yeah, yeah that's right there's never there's never a point due in this film when someone isn't in peril if you look at this and i hate to compare it to the film i'm gonna to have to mention the last jedi which that whole film is the rebels are trying to escape basically the, the premise of hannah and leia's journey in this film 
Mm. Well, I, I think, well, to clarify, I think when I say slow down, I, I, I don't mean at all that it's kind of in a negative pace kind of way. It's just that it feels there's, there's a big story to tell and it's yeah. very well constructed. You I know, think, it's, yeah, it's, it's done it's, in such a way that it's given you a lot of information about the characters in such an efficient way that it feels like it's taking its time. But what it's doing is just throwing so much information at you. Yeah. A lot of it you're probably picking up subconsciously on your first, second, third viewing. But then obviously we've seen this film God knows how many times. And yeah, you know, it, it is one of those films that does benefit from repeat viewing. Going in from the Battle of Hoth, which is, as we've just said, is one of the greatest things I ever committed to film from a point of view of spectacle and scale. We then go into the fucking asteroid chase. We've got the we've got the the Empire chasing the Millennium Falcon, and we've got something that we kind of saw with the Death Star battle. But when you have a, a battle in space, it's always in a way on a kind of two dimensional plane. But in this, we see star destroyers actually heading towards each other and then the Millennium Falcon does something we've never seen before it actually goes down yeah. to get away from them it uses the three dimensions of space properly yeah they're not like they're not flying in straight lines exactly other, yeah they're yeah, not yeah. yeah they're not they're not flying away from these star destroyers on a horizontal plane they're actually using three-dimensional space and that's something that I had just never seen before and in fact far too often we haven't actually seen that much since in films which you know, have got big battles set in space well, there's one, there's one part where that the Star Destroyers are almost seemingly heading head on mm. to each other. And then yeah, when, that's you, right. when, you, when you get the underneath view with the Falcon, they're passing hundreds of feet below each other, above each other and below yeah. each other. And I say, if you look at the special effects there, the Falcon had looked great in, in Star Wars. But now we're going to see the Falcon do like barrel rolls and yeah. dives and, you know, you know, twists and turns. Things that probably couldn't have been done in the first film, but the effects have moved on that much, primarily from Lucas, you know, and um, Industrial Light and Magic. Yeah. But now we're getting a real sort of sense of how agile this ship is. Because when you look at the Falcon, it doesn't actually look... It looks quite a sort of clunky vehicle, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, but it's so sort of like... It's almost got like a sort of Balearic grace to it. It spins as it's going through space. It looks amazing. And then you've, you've got the score. And like I said, the, the Asteroid Chase piece of music that John Williams came up with you know, just solidifies his position as just an absolute genius of film score com- composition. And everything just works perfectly. Every little line of dialogue, uh, like with C3PO when he's like pleaded with that with Han Solo, he goes, "Yeah, let's get closer to that one." He goes, "Closer." It's just, <laughs> it's, it's like this constant energy and pace, which, as you said, Neil, comparing it to the Last Jedi, oh my God, that is like taking a huge space chase and dragging it out in slow motion. It's a fucking hour and a half long space chase. What the hell? Sorry, Ryan Johnson. People have said that oh, you know this is like the Empire Strikes Back of this new trilogy. No, I'm sorry. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm I say I'm not going to slag off all the other all the newer films because we could just make a whole show. We've made whole shows, haven't we? But if if you, you say if you compare it to everyone wants to do an Empire, everyone wants to do an Empire f- a film, right? They want to yes. follow up a film. This is going to be our Empire. I'd say the only film that's ever come close to doing that is Infinity War. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at like the Matrix and the other second chapters in films like that, where they've tried to do an empire yeah. and it's ended, ended on a sort of bleak turn, it's never been as successful. The same sort of way, when you look at, like we were saying about um, the sort of pace of this film, if we look at the last Star Wars film, what was it the, oh, I can't remember what it's called now, The Rise of Skywalker? Yeah. That, that's a frenetic film. That's ramp-packed and they're shoving things in your face all the way through it, but none of it makes sense. No, it's not. You're right. This, this, has, got, yeah. this has got the perfect balance of having that sort of frenetic pace but it's split out and spread out in such a way that it's easy to follow it's easy to understand and scenes actually things that happen in scenes actually have a relevance to the following scene mm. 
you know? As much as you've got big action scenes like Hoth and then you've got the asteroid chase, the stuff that is padded out with, you know, the Luke on Dagobah stuff. Well, this, I mean, this is often quoted thing, but this film is confident to open up on the big battle scene. That's the finale. This film opens with the finale. Yeah. And nowadays, if a film opens on a finale like that, it's going to be topped. I mean, even if I use Infinity War, it's a film I absolutely love. If you look at that so opening battle scene when um, they come down to, you know, and Strange is there and, you know, it's all kicking off and New York's being destroyed again. It's like, yeah, but we're going to top that towards the end when we go to Wakanda. This film doesn't do that. This film goes, here's your finale. Now I'm going to give you a story. That's right. And I think all the stuff that follows with Luke landing on Dagobah and finding Yoda, I think what we're given there, looking back now with hindsight, we're given so much stuff. Like you say, I think one of you, was it you, Neil, that said that this act, this film made Star Wars, didn't it? It, it propelled it into being something else. Yeah, it's cemented. It's cemented yeah. It's, it's, yeah. And I think what we're given here is the mythology of Star Wars in detail is cemented by all the stuff that we learn about the Force and subsequently seeing Luke's training and all of this just mystical stuff that Yoda's spouting. If you take all of those scenes away from Star Wars, then you lose so much. Yeah, it does, in a way, you, you can't have action set piece after action set piece. You've got to have time to breathe. And again, this film is all about pacing. It's two hours and seven minutes long. Not a scene is wasted. Not a frame is wasted. You know, even little things like that incredible bit where now Admiral Piet comes into Darth Vader's chamber room and sees the the helmet going down on his head. So yeah. we actually think, oh, right, so he is actually human underneath that. Yeah, yeah. Up until that point, he could have been just some giant killer robot, couldn't he? Exactly, yeah. Of course he could. Yeah. yeah. Lucas has killed off Ben Kenobi in the first film. He's then dug back into his studies into mythology, which he was really into. And then he's, he's created this replacement teacher for Luke, who's like this sort of small, insignificant character archetype that the hero initially disregards as being unimportant, who then later turns out to be this all-powerful wizard. Now, Yoda, what can we say about him as a character in the, the, in the Star Wars pantheon? Again, on paper, it shouldn't work. You know, if you look, you know, essentially we're going to make... This make this main sort of sage character a muppet. You'd have just laughed if that had been brought up, wouldn't you? Yeah. The fact that they've they've given so so much screen time again. If this didn't work, it would have made the film a mockery, wouldn't it? It would have. Yeah. It's again, it's a testament to to Frank Oz, isn't it? And and obviously the design work and everything. But you you just buy it, don't you? You know, you 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 don't. There's no at no point you think, ah, oh, Luke's talking to a puppet. It's not the Sooty Show. It, it feels, whether it's because he's so ingrained in our consciousness as a character, but even even on the rewatch, and I watched it uh, yesterday for the first time in probably a year, and there's, there's no, you don't question it at all, do you? Yeah. you he, is, he is a presence on the screen, and Luke is talking to Yoda. You know, it is... It, it is incredibly well done, well realised. I love the stories about how how Yoda came to be designed, uh, and they couldn't they, they couldn't sort of get his head right. They couldn't get his head right, and then they had um, well, the, the guy whose name escapes me now, but he was the uh, Stuart Freeborn. Yeah, and he took it away, and he said, "Give give me a couple of days, and come back." And he basically modelled Yoda's face on himself. Yeah, and I just think that's brilliant. Now, Neil, I think it was you mentioned earlier on in the episode that Luke. Uh, I think you mentioned Joseph Campbell. Yeah, yeah. Now, Lucas was fascinated with his writings and like the origins of myths and religions and mythology. And Campbell had actually later stated that the best student he ever had was George Lucas. So he, he obviously he's had a real grasp of mythology which is evident in this sort of well he's, he's created a fictitious religion and a mythology in the star wars universe 
And it's, it's essentially it's essentially finding that creature at the side of the road that you think is unimportant. That is it. And just, and just tags along with you, but yeah. then he saves the life. Yeah. Now imagine if Yoda spouting all of this philosophical dialogue. Imagine if he didn't talk in this inverted, like, backwards way. All of that dialogue wouldn't be half as interesting or memorable. That backwards speaking just is a little additional touch that just makes that character work. It's not really backward speaking when you think about it, no. because it's almost it's almost like cutting out the unimportant parts of a sentence. It is. You know, yeah. it's like do or do not. There is no try. Yeah. You know, you could say that that's one line, and it could be four lines. It could be well, you could have a go if you want, but if you don't believe you can do it, then you can't really do it. And if you don't believe in yourself, then no one else will believe in you. And if you believe in yourself, you can achieve anything you want. Or. Yeah. Do or do not, there is no try. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's almost like he's so sort of like he's got so many he's spinning so many plates, if you like. He's viewing the universe now, in the past, in the future, doing a Doctor Strange, if you like, looking at all the different outcomes. And he hasn't got he hasn't got time to speak in a, a sort of fully coherent sentence. He's just getting the important parts out. And that's why I forget that this amazing character that we're completely sold on is a little puppet. It's a muppet, you know, for want of a better term. Well, originally it was going to be Jim Henson was originally yeah. going to be doing it, and it was only he didn't have the time because he was doing stuff with the Muppets himself that he recommended Frank Oz, wasn't it? You know, all the little things that you don't really think of, like that Dagobah set with all the animals he must have had, and the mist and the fog and all that. You buy it all. Yeah. Well, you say you look at some of the documentaries, and you got like um, the one bit where Hamill gets bit by a snake and basically just turned a studio in Pinewood into a swamp. Yeah. And I think it was like two months, wasn't it? He was the only cast, he was the only cast member. Yeah, he had yeah. no interaction yeah. with any of the other cast members. He's basically acting against a puppet and, a, you know, a, well, okay, Kenny Baker inside R2-D2, you know? And like, you know, like you say, it's, it's one of those things where you look at it and think, again, on paper, does this really work? Yeah. You know, and this is, this is the sort of beauty of running your own show, isn't it? Because... Mm-hmm. Lucas clearly had a vision what he was doing there. You know, we spoke with Kirshner. But Kirshner, you know, Hamill was saying a lot of times that he used to joke around about, because um, he had to keep an earpiece in to actually hear what Frank Oz was saying. Yeah. And, you know, he said he used to pick up, like, Radio 1 and stuff like that, and he'd sort of joke around. And it was, Kirshner was saying to him, look, you know, it's, it's not so much your performance now. I've got to make sure the smoke's right. I've got to make sure the snake's still in the same position yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. <laughs> you know? So, you know, to be an actor and pull off a performance like that, and, he, you know, he, he comes across as quite sort of cocky, arrogant, but also further on in the scenes, like sort of almost like wide-eyed enthusiasm for learning the ways of the Force. You know, he's finally found his purpose and he's found someone who can teach him. But at the same time, He's got to sort of combat with the fact that, you know, he's, stand, he's standing on an even ground. There's pythons left, right and centre of yeah. him. You know, there's fog blowing in his face. If you see any of the behind-the-scenes stuff, all the crew have got, like, um, respirator, quite ironically, we're all going to be wearing them soon, respirator masks on. Yeah. You know, yeah. have hands walking around, breathing in all these fumes all yeah. day. But the thing is, as well, is we're used we're now nowadays within cinema with CGI creations and characters and what have you, we are used to, we just accept the unreal as real. Whereas back then, you know, it can't be enough. Can't be said about the fact that he's acting opposite a puppet, and he's, you know, he's Mark Hamill's performance. When you think that he is acting, a, 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 acting alongside a, a latex puppet, it's not only the performance of Frank Oz and how well the the puppet is created and how well it's moved, but it's Mark Hamill's performance. Because if if there was anything about his performance that told us that he was that he didn't believe it, then we would we would be taken out of it. Yeah course yeah it'd be, it'd be very easy to sort of like do a sort of like a roll of the eyes every now and then wouldn't it when you you know when you have to take you know sage advice from a, someone who's got their hand inside of a yeah. puppet like. <laughs> there's one, one of the one of the criticisms that that has been laid against empire is 
during this period of the story, what is the time frame? Because you've got things that seem to be happening very, very close together with Leia and Han and the Millennium Falcon. And then you've got this training period with Luke, whereby it's possibly going on for days, weeks or whatever. My, my personal view is it, does, it doesn't bother me. Um, it, does, it doesn't pull me out to the story. It's not something that I, you know, if you're going to look at it with an analytical eye, you, you may sort of pick up on it. But I, I don't feel that I am pulled out to the story. And I think it's possibly probably because because the film itself is so it, it encapsulates you so well it's one of those things you kind of just let go mm. whereas yeah. i think if that if this had happened in one of the sequel trilogy films i think if this if this sequence if you, you imagine this happening in um in say the last jedi for example i think that we'd 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 be really really bothered by it because it would be it, it would it would stand out then whereas in in this there's a workaround though you could think that when han and leia are talking about where to go next and then they decide to go to bespin he actually says it's, it's quite a dis- it's not exactly close so they could have been traveling for days from that point to get the yeah, best true. you know yeah perhaps we're looking back at this with a little bit of sentimentality perhaps we're looking at it and we're fanboying and it doesn't really matter the, the other side of this is when a film has got flaws, you tend to look for more flaws. Yeah. When you've got a film as flawless as this, yeah, yeah. Little, do you know, Rich? I have never noticed that. I've never once given that thought. Now, when you look at how I've sort of sat down and dissected the last three films mm. and found problems instantly, walking out of the cinema, I've said, "But what about?" Yeah. That's never occurred to me because I've just enjoyed the film that much that I haven't had to think about things like that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. When a film's doing things as good as this, star, then you you just. It doesn't deserve to be nitpicked. It it it's earned no, its not points already. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Going back to the Imperial fleet, one of the first times I ever realised the beauty of widescreen television at home is when, having grown up on the four to three pan and scan VHS and television versions of these films, when I finally actually got them in widescreen on VHS, and you've seen that scene of. Darth Vader talking to the three holographic commanders. Just before that, we actually see an asteroid hitting the bridge of one of the yeah. uh, Star Destroyers. And then you actually yeah. see one of the three holographic captains or admirals going, ah, and just disappearing. Yeah, yeah. In, in, the, in the cropped pan and scan version, they actually cut that segment of the screen off. So it wasn't until I saw it in widescreen I ever saw that. And I was like, holy shit, how much actual fucking picture information have I been missing all along? Doing the rewatch, I was actually thinking, was this something he added? Because I couldn't remember seeing that before. Yeah, because if you've seen, you know, if you've grown up on the pan and scan version, then yeah, you're, yeah. you're not going to have seen it. Admiral Piet comes along and says, uh, you know, Lord Vader, the Emperor commands you to make contact with him. Straight away, Vader's like, right, get us out of the asteroid field because I need to go <laughs> and talk to the boss. And then we've got a scene. Now, Let's talk about the special editions. 1997, obviously George Lucas, mostly for worse, but in some cases for better, went back and tinkered, is, is pretty likely, with that original trilogy. And he made a hell of a lot of changes to the first and the third films, very few of which add anything to them, and a lot of them really detract and really piss detract, a lot of people definitely. off. I think that's included. Yeah. And as much as I do remember the original emperor that they had which was it was a female actress it was the voice of clive revel and it was yeah. apparently this, it was rick like baker's a, wife rick baker's wife wasn't it was it ah right yeah like i think it's it's either june or jane i can't remember right. but it was yeah they literally she was just on set i think i don't mm. i think she was an actress anyway but um she was just on set and he decided to use her i've gone back today and i've re i've re-watched the original footage on youtube because my memory of it was that it was far shorter it was a far shorter sequence and and i seem to remember that when the new version with ian mcdiamond came about that it was 
you know, it was tied to this, this this huge introduction to the Emperor and it was a big scene and all the rest of it. But actually, there's only about three lines of dialogue extra in Ian in, in McDiarmid's sequence. I think, isn't this, you know, the scene, I think it's a, almost twice as long. You know, it, it's not a very it, long scene to start off with. Yeah, it's, it was about a minute about a minute to start off with and now it's about two minutes. Yeah. A, even additional dialogue was recorded for this version by uh, James Earl Jones. Yeah, yeah. well, it, it's because it says... The line that, that that Vader gives to Luke, you know, search your feelings and know it to be true. That's what the Emperor yeah. says to Vader. Yeah, that's that's added into it. Yeah, that's before, before we get actually picked apart by the hardcore Star Wars fans here, that actual version, the new version with Ian McDermott, didn't actually get put into the 1997 special edition. No, that's right. It was, it was filmed in 2004, 2004, wasn't it? When yeah. Ian yes. McDermott was back on set filming Re- Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, that's so right. It just goes to show. It's not even like you know, there's so much additional stuff that happened for the DVD releases, the Blu-ray releases, and then you know you've you've just got all of this tinkering. How many different versions of that Jabba the Hutt scene from the first Star Wars film that was put back in? How many different versions of that have we seen since? How many different versions it's, of Han shooting first or not shooting first uh, have we seen? That, that's when you're talking about. T- that's when you're talking about tinkering. I mean, that's you know that's still happening now with that scene, isn't it? Yeah, and it's like. A lot of the time, when you say this is probably the one that had the least tinkering on it, that a lot of that might be to do with the fact that George Lucas didn't have his eye behind the camera lens when that scene was being filmed. I mm-hmm. think yeah. so. It's almost like it's almost like sort of pissing on Kirshner's work, isn't it? Yeah. You know, but then you look at you look at the changes that he did make. You know, the the, the touching up to the um, for the sequences on Hoth with the X with the X wings. He recolored the insides of the X wings, didn't he? So that it so that it was no longer because obviously there was the, the blue screen, so so that you could see. Um, through the through the the sides of the uh, of the ship, so it was stuff there that actually did improve it. It was you know it, it did. I don't think by watching the original you would think to yourself you know you'd be taken out of the film because of it. But these were this this was use of computer effects to perfect something um, that that technically wasn't able to be done at the time. And and the you know the attack on Hoth when Luke was um, taken by um, by the Wampa, Wampa. that yeah. works. Yeah, that scene, that, that scene is an added bonus, if you like, seeing yeah, the Wampa there. And like you say, seeing the Wampa's lair and seeing him sort of there chewing on whatever he's chewing. Uh, uh, the thing is, it's not supposed to be the same Wampa. I think it's supposed to be like a male and female in this sort of cave. Like, one, one's a hunter gatherer, and that's like, he's brought Luke home, left him there as a snack for her later mm. or something. Wow. That, that's the prequel I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> who was it? Was, it was Gareth Edwards who did the raid, what it was saying he wants to do. A film set on Hoth, didn't he? And he wants to do Wampers attacking people. <laughs> All right. Was it Gareth Edwards? I shared it on the page. I can't remember. If it wasn't Gareth Edwards, I apologise. But I, I'm pretty sure it was. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, so I think that in this, you know, up until obviously the Ian McDiarmid mid sequence, in this, the, the, the special editions, it's used very much to kind of tweak and improve areas that he was clearly sort of unhappy with, that he was clearly happier with this film than he was with Jedi and Well, that's the thing, see, Rich. I've heard that until Empire got the standing that it's got now as being widely regarded as the best Star Wars film, I've read in certain places that George Lucas felt that this was the weakest film initially. Yes, crazy, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I don't know. I don't know how much of that is like sort of folklore because there's, there's never sort of thing that this film wasn't critically received well, and it's like literally if you look into it, it's like a handful of bad reviews. I mean, I've mm. no doubt. You know, if you look at sort of the the sort of fifty fifty split, if you like, with the Last Jedi, where you know the critics, you know, either loved it or hated it, it wasn't the case at all with this film. There no. was there was one or so, there were one or two detractors, and I I think with Lucas, I think a lot of that is I think he just lost that sort of personal touch that he had with the other films. 
Yeah, and, well, if you look at, you know, this is the film that he had, for the most part, the least involvement with. But mm-hmm. then going back to the whole special edition debacle with all the stuff that was added, I think one of the biggest compliments you can pay to this film is the fact that this is the film that he had to tinker with the least. Yeah, because yeah. That's, if, that says it all, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, really? if it ain't broke, <laughs> don't fix it. Did we need, really, to have an extra scene showing Darth Vader going from Bespin to the executor just to show how he's got from no. one place to the other are we not intelligent enough to work out the fact that yeah you know he's got back up to the ship to be there for that last final that was basically lucas's ego taking over i think there wasn't mm-hmm. it he didn't need to insert that and in fact if you look the admiral that's walking towards him when he gets off the shuttle is actually the same admiral from the second death star in return of the jedi so clearly they'd used an outtake from return of the jedi ah uh, yeah. right okay that scene didn't need to be there, but at the same time, it doesn't really spoil things in the way that all of those extra no. additions that you did to certain, you know, the, 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 the alternate musical things in Return of the Jedi, ah, oh, they just... Yeah. A lot of that, it's like I say, when you go, when you go into the sort of the town square of Tatooine and you've got, you know, stormtroopers getting thrown off bloody lizards and stuff like that, and it's mm-hmm. like, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Whereas, <laughs> yeah. it's when you- you know, when we can, when we're now seeing the skyscape outside of uh, through the windows in Cloud City, that that doesn't. I don't think that feels. That doesn't feel. Um, no, just, that enhances it. Enhances, that enhances it. it. Yeah. Yeah. It opens up Cloud City, and it's all done to the film's benefit. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. There's no. There's no bells. I, I was say with this. I would say there's no bells and whistles to anything he's added on in this film. No. It's like you say, it's enhancing it. You know, it's making things look brighter. It's making things look clearer. Yeah, it's it's, get, it's getting rid of mat lines on Hoth. It's getting rid of the transparent cockpits on the snow speeders. Yeah, it's adding like a fine shine to it rather than sort of yeah. like just clot, you know, clodding as much as he can into it, like ham fisting, you know, as much as he can fit into the screen. It's doing what? In fact, one of the best examples, I think, of someone going back to an old film and adding new effects is George Lucas's own film, THX 1138. When he did that director's cut in the early 2000s, he went back in and added new CGI effect. You watch them and they don't look like CGI effects. None of it looks, none of it stand up, stands out and says, yeah, this is a film that was made in you know 2001 or whatever, as opposed to 1971. All the effects are done really well. Robert Wise then did the same thing in 2001 with the director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture. You know, it can be done if it's done subtly and if it's done just to enhance yeah. things that the director wasn't happy with when he made the film all those years ago. It's, it's like we've said many times when we talk about CGI. It's there, it should be used to enhance the story, not That's in right. place of or not in... And I think, <laughs> you know, as you said, Neil, about the, the, the things in, in Star Wars, it was very much, when, when he went back and did that, it seemed very much to be showing we're putting these in because we can not because we need to and i think that there's in in theory there's nothing wrong with the idea that he would perhaps bump into um jabba you know granted jabba puts on quite a bit of weight in a very short amount of time but there's he's you know it's not it's not unreasonable to suggest it but those early the, the early sequences it, they, they weren't good <laughs> they weren't good at all and, you know? and, again, and you just think why put them in the thing is the jabba scene if you look at that i mean the whole impetus of like han's thing is he's on the run from jabba and he gets caught up in this crazy ass adventure you know by introducing jabba at the beginning of the story it sort of takes away from it, doesn't it? Because it's like, well, you know, it should have been sorted then and there, shouldn't it? 
but we also we, we haven't we, at that time you know i know that we've all we all know what jabba the hut looks like and all the rest of it at that time as the viewer to that film you don't you're not supposed to know who jabba is or what jabba looks like you know for, no, the, exactly. for the first time viewers yeah but i think it, Rich, we're, again we're looking at it from the point of view maybe the true. wrong point of view that was 1997 yeah. maybe he was doing it to introduce those films to a new generation and yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was maybe for us, or maybe those bits were for us, the people who knew the characters, and they were just, it was giving them an excuse to put him back in the cinema. And, I think that's more the case, to yeah. be honest, because if you look at his introducing it to a new audience, you'd introduce the story in the same way that the story was told originally, wouldn't you? Exactly, yeah, that's right. But also, it's, it's also telling us what's coming with the prequels, isn't it? Because yeah. it's mm. kind of, you know, we're going into an incredibly CG heavy Phantom Menace. Yeah. <laughs> so, back to Dagobah, we've got that amazing scene in Yoda's hut where. The penny drops and Yoda reveals himself just exactly at the same moment where Obi-Wan makes his presence known again. And again, let's not take credit away from the fact that as as well as this amazing puppet, amazing puppetry work, awesome voice acting by Frank Goss, Mark Hamill is completely selling this because he is completely sincere. Yes. You know, we talk about Carrie Fisher, you know, we, we don't need to say anything about Harrison Ford. He's always had you know, the accolades of being a, you know, a great actor in all of these films, all the Star Wars films, Indiana, Indiana Jones films, and you know, he's gone on to have an incredible career. But this is Luke Skywalker's story, and none of this works if Mark Hamill doesn't sell that character. And he's just flawless all the way throughout this film, much like Carrie Fisher's performances. In fact, like everyone in this film, but, but Hamill, this is his story, and he is front and centre, and he just doesn't drop the ball at any point. You just believe it, you know. When you mm. see his transformation, you know, obviously he, has the, he goes to the cave and, and has the the vision of, of fighting with Vader, and and you don't know. Again, you're not supposed to know necessarily what that means at the time. Obviously, with hindsight, we we, we sort of do know what the suggestion is. But is it that you know? Is it saying that that Vader's his father? Or is it saying that you know he's it's one of his fears that he's going to turn to the dark side? Yeah. But it, you do you you because of his very 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 kind of um, he's not over the top. You know, when you think about what it is, as I said before, you know, he's acting against a latex puppet on this ridiculous sort of swampy, smoky planet. And he's running around with Yoda strapped to his back. He's doing a handstand, you know, all these all these daft things that if in the hands of people that in the hands of lesser actors and, and, and lesser performances would look absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But it like, just they, they, they absolutely nail it. It's a clear sign of less being more sometimes, like you say, of like show don't tell. When you look at the sort of scene in The Last Jedi, okay, well, I was going to do this, where Ray goes into the cave and there's like some mystical mirror that shows yeah. like, you know, different versions of her and stuff like that. It's like so overcomplicated. It doesn't mean anything. Now, I can remember as a kid watching that bit in the cave and thinking, was that Luke's face in there? Was that not Luke's face? You know, why is Darth Vader there? It gave me all these sort of questions straight away. But it's done in such a sort of simplistic way. When, when we get a reveal... It's almost been given to us earlier. It's like, well, we told you that earlier. Yeah. You know, you, you and Vader are one and the same. The storytelling on display is a lot better, isn't it? It's- they're giving us a little glimpse of their cards, but they're not showing us the full hand. Yeah. Yeah. All right, then we go from Dagobah back to the executor, Bounty Hunters. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Scum. Yes, sir. Those rebels won't escape us. Let's look Sir, we have a priority signal from the Star Destroyer Avenger. Right. There will be a substantial reward for the one who finds the Millennium Falcon. 
You are free to use any methods necessary, but I want them alive. No disintegrations. As you wish. Lord Vader. My lord, we have them. What an insignificant character that the fans just embraced and just put up there alongside any other character in, in this series. What is it about Boba Fett that just people gravitate towards and just think is so cool? Is it the design? It just, it just works as Star Wars, doesn't it? Because he looks like a sort of rebel version of a stormtrooper, doesn't he? Well, yeah, he, looks yeah, like, like a, like a, he looks like a rock rock star version of a stormtrooper. Yeah, like almost like with a touch of like samurai armor on him as well. Yeah, but again, if you look at like sort of Bosch and like you know, the IG droid there and stuff like that, I mean these these look cool, but they they just look as if they could be in the background of the cantina scene. But they all look Boba so Fett. different as well, though. Yeah, mm. but and there's and there's no explanation. It's, no. it's 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 that thing of we've what we've done is we've given people the job of creating some really cool looking people yeah. things. And and as you say, you know, you've got the IG droid, you've got Bobby, you've got Bosk, you've got people. They're not they're not. It's not a it's not a team where they're all wearing the same uniforms. No. Or the same armor. They are these individual sort of people that carrying guns, you know. But you can see all the battle scars on their armor and what have you. And and they just look. They, they, I mean, particularly Bobby. And and what does he have? Five lines in the whole film. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just cool as fuck, isn't he? There's just no two ways about it. I mean, it's not just it's not just how he looks. It's what he does. Han Solo pulls pulls the you know the wool over the Empire's eyes by you know sticking the Millennium Falcon to the back of the bridge of one of the Star Destroyers. Yeah. Boba Fett knows exactly what he's going to do because Boba Fett, yes. if, if Han Solo is one step ahead of the Empire, then Boba Fett is one step ahead of Han Solo because that well, guy... Well, they mix in the same circles, don't they? Exactly, they mix in the same circles. Yeah. Well, uh, that's the thing as well because we sort of get that glimpse, don't we, like you say, about just a one throwaway line. We get one of the commanders saying... I can't believe he's got these like these scumbags on our ship. You know, yeah, so yeah. Straight, yeah. straight away, it's like even the Empire is a little bit wary of, of, the, of, the, of the bounty. In, in fact, Neil, yeah. isn't it? It's, he says to him... Uh, Bounty hunters, we don't need this scum. And then, and then his subordinate right. says, uh, "Yes, sir." He's like, "No, I wasn't asking you a question. I was making a statement." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't, you don't need to say yes, sir. I wasn't asking you anything. But yeah. they're fucking scum. Yeah. I absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but like that's the thing as well. If you look at that as well, mind you, I mean, Vader goes round and sort of gives his, you know, his little chat about like this and that. But with that, seems to be the only one who's not in sort of fear of Darth Vader. You know, I said, I don't know how convey from behind the mask, but it's just the sort of stance. And the st- You're right, he is. He doesn't, like, you know, later on in the film, where... When he goes to the cab, like, does it? And he's like, well, you know, if he dies, now I'm going to lose this money. You yeah, know, he's yeah, really, yeah, he's crashing he's really Vader. Like, no one else is crashing Vader. I mean, when you look at, like, all the commanders, I mean, if there was an HR department, the last Star Destroyer, Vader would spend most of his time in the office, wouldn't he? Every time someone questions him, they get force jokes. Exactly, of course. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know, and then you can pull a fact, he's sort of, like, instantly, even when he's sort of giving him a the, 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 uh, no disintegration to this time, you know, and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Clearly, Vader's used this guy before. <laughs> He's used him before, yeah. and he knows his methods. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. You know, there's a reason. There's a reason why he's picked up the space phone. If you like to phone up, to phone him up this time, he's like, oh, f- fucking hell. Sometimes you got to, you know, send the maniac to catch a maniac. Yeah. If you know what I'm saying, there, Scott. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're back on Dagobah, and then we've got a scene with Luke being taught, and then you know, as he's lifting R2D2 and these rocks and whatever, the X-wing sinks into the swamp. And then you've got that amazing scene of Yoda just showing Luke what the Force is all about. You, you know, I said earlier about how important these scenes are to Star Wars. You know, this one, just from a point of view of just being awe-inspiring. This, this encapsulates everything that you need to know about the Force. This little insignificant guy 
who you, know, you wouldn't think can defend himself from the likes of Darth Vader or whatever, is able to you know lift this ship up. And and again, you know, we saw the first glimpses of it earlier on where Luke pulls the lightsaber towards himself in the in the Wampa cave, mm-hmm. and then this is like the ultimate take, taking is that the, scene to its conclusion. It's the Yoda money shot, isn't it? It is. It is. It's something that's used time and time and again in, in sort of classic storytelling as well. It's like you know, if you can move, you know, you can move a a, a penny along a table, I can move a mountain. It's, you know, it's reality it's, taking the top off the bottles, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, it's it uncapped potential of the force, basically. Like you see, yeah. like Sky was saying, if some little three foot green dude can lift that up, what can I do? What can yeah. Vader do? Yeah, as I said earlier, Star Wars is escapist fantasy. Then that is one of the most uplifting sort of romantic scenes in the film with. John Williams's music just making it everything that it is is just beautiful. Well, I think it's like a sort of combination at that at that point in time. Everything in the universe is concentrated on that on that X wing coming out last last one, isn't it? If you like, he's like he's embraced the entire universe there. He's channeled the force through, and it's like literally, it wouldn't matter if it was a star destroyer. He could lift it up. It, yeah. The size the size of the item doesn't matter. Well, I want to spin back to the Emperor. So that's because we did, although I mentioned it, we didn't actually cover it. Go on, mate. So. This sequence, then, this sequence, this this uh, kind of um, interplay between um, the Vader and, and the Emperor, as as it as it existed originally, it was. Um, I think the Emperor says we have every reason to believe that that, that Skywalker is the son of uh, is the son of Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. Now with the McDiarmids, as it as it's now expanded. No, in actual fact, I tell a lie. I think in the I think in in um, Clive Ravel's voice, I think he they don't mention Anakin Skywalker. I think it's just no, he he's the person who's going to destroy us. Yeah. He's the, he's the one that's going to destroy us. Okay. Yeah. And now with Ian McDiarmid, it is, I believe that he's the son of Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think this raises the question now, who does Vader think he is? Because you've got that, you, you, you've got the surname Skywalker for one thing. Now, you know, how common is that surname? Is he, does, does he think when, when he knows that he's Luke Skywalker, take Ian McDiarmid's uh, sentences out of it. But are we supposed to question whether Vader suspects him to be his son or a relative? Or we're not supposed to think about it at all because I think that the minute that now we've got the Emperor saying, you know, he is, you know, he is the son of Anakin, and and obviously with with, with the hinting to the audience, look inside yourself, and you and you'll 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 know it to be true. It means that he questions. If you fast forward the Jedi, you can answer that question because he says yeah, any- that that name no longer holds any meaning for me. Yeah, and we've also got the other side of it. If you fast forward to the the Rise of Skywalker, no, let's not go the that. End far. Of that any, any, anyone can call himself Skywalker, oh. and everyone else just accepts it. Oh, so no, don't worry about no, it. Neil, stop, stop. Oh, my, my, question, my question is: I think, no, I think I more, of, more, more of my question is more, more of my question is. It's only I now agree. that I've compared the two because I haven't watched the original Emperor stuff for a long time, and it's only now when I've watched the two back to back where I think that I was happy with them inserting Ian McDiarmid into that because I'm, I'm massive on continuity and I'm mass, massive on things looking right and looking the same. So I thought that of all the major changes that, that were made with, with, okay, not the special editions, but the special editions onwards, that this was the biggest change that worked because now we have the Emperor the same throughout every film that he's in. Yeah. And it stands out as looking incorrect. But actually, there was no need to add that line of dialogue because, as I said before, you bought Vader's um, motivation for pursuing Luke Skywalker because Luke Skywalker was the one who destroyed the Death Star. Hmm. So you don't really question it because, you know, ultimately, I mean, he's not Luke Roberts, is he? So it may be a common name, but you're not supposed to think about it. But I think at that point, it raises 
well, why is he, you know, it kind of puts a magnifying glass over why is he pursuing him in the first place? Because you're questioning, well, did he know before or didn't he? Because now if the Emperor's only telling him now... I think the great thing, Rich, is it's it's open to interpretation. And I think by by that point, certainly in the three years in between Star Wars and Empire, I think Vader's worked it out. Yeah, I think I think he's worked it out, but I don't think it's something he's actively acknowledged to anyone. Yeah, I don't think he's had that conversation with the emperor before. I think it's supposed to be my interpretation of it anyway. Is that there's so much of the Sith, there's so much of the dark side in him now. Like Kenobi says, you know, he's more machine than man now. He's he's turned completely away. Like like Sky was saying, hey, that name has no relevance to me. It doesn't make any difference to me. It's almost as if 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 he was to admit he was Anakin Skywalker, he could no longer be Darth Vader. Yeah, but he's very much a leader from the front, isn't he? Because if you notice, whenever they go, when they go to Hoth, he's always, he doesn't send all of his troopers on their own. He's there because he wants Luke. Of course he is, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, because if, if you look at the first film, he's almost like the Emperor's muscle, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And even now he's in command, he's still, like you say, he's still leading from the front, isn't he? He can't let go. Know? He's got all that admin to do about leave and sickness and everything, and he just has to get on. He's, just, he's out there all the time. He's con- <laughs> you know but I think as well, but, but I genuinely think that it's, it's points like this that people now, having seen maybe the whole saga or the sequels and the prequels, that will pick up points on this. And for me, any any little niggle that now exists within any of the original trilogy is not the fault of the original trilogy. It's the fault of the prequels for not honouring what was already written. Yeah, I, I, but yeah. again, though, that's why, as I said jokingly at the beginning, I'm only going to, from from my point of view, as a personal preference, look at these as five films. I, I will accept the prequels. I don't hate them. In a way, I kind of feel sorry for them. I feel sorry for you know the man who made them, like a, a great filmmaker who lost his way and just couldn't follow up on the promise that the original I trilogy delivered. He almost had Avatar Syndrome, didn't he? Because he did, he's yeah. going back yeah. over and he's trying to... I have no doubt that with those prequel films, the Lucas first draft was full of good ideas mm-hmm. and then he thought and then he overthought it and thought yeah. too much about it and overcooked it yeah i agree i agree one of the one of the bits where younger teenage me realized how clever this film was is when luke is having the vision of his friends suffering and when the penny dropped and i actually realized he is actually seeing han solo being tortured and that's the whole reason because yes. like han said he never even asked me any questions and it was at that point where i thought holy shit He's actually seeing the future, isn't he? He's yeah, actually yeah. seeing what's going to happen. But Yoda, tell, Yoda tells him that. Yeah, Darth Vader, knowing that Luke is now becoming more Force-sensitive and is undergoing training, will actually feel the pain in the past of his friend being tortured in the present, and that will get him to come where he wants him to go. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. absolutely brilliant. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It is, and I, I will be honest as well, as much as I've just shot the prequels down, it goes back to Anakin feeling Padme's pain before she did. Yeah. Because that, you know, Revenge of the Sith basically is geared around. He knows she's going to die in childbirth. He knows she's going to have a painful sort of, you know, death. He doesn't know it's childbirth, but he's having premonitions of her screaming in pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's and it's, it's the same sort of thing. So you could look at that, actually. There's, that bit at least does work. We get the best spin with Han, with Han Leia, Chewie, and 3PO. Right, let's have it out now, guys. Who is cooler, Lando Calrissian or Han Solo? Han Solo without a, ha- without a shadow of a doubt. I, I, I don't know. I'll tell you what. I'll give my Go reason on. why. Go on. Because Lando looks cool. Lando is cool. Lando's wearing a goddamn cape. Lando walks out <laughs> with a swagger. Han Solo basically is, uh, well, as much to quote his other sort of alter ego of Indiana Jones, is just making it up as he goes along. And is basically just ad-libbing to cover his own yeah. mistakes while he's thinking out loud. 
for me, that's far cooler. <laughs> yeah, but Han, as we've seen with this film, how he is with Leia, he's insecure. He's, you know, you, like you wouldn't have Lando playing Leia like this. No way. Well, I tell you what, he's, he's far more of a rogue. Oh, Land, Lando's, all fr- Lando's all friend. Come on. Lando's all friends. <laughs> well, he—I mean, he, he sold them out, didn't he? I mean, you know, all, all of that performance on the on the bridge of, of when they first land. You know, Vader was already there. The, the Empire were already there. So all of that—it's all the rules. It's all acting. And what, what what an amazing introduction for a character. Yeah, I say that's not to do any disservice to Lando and Billy. I mean, to me, he portrays a character who should be cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas Han Solo wants everyone to think he's cool. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Han Solo's been around too long now. He's been he's been with people too long, and and the cracks are appearing. Whereas he lives off the fact that he knows people for a little while, and then he's on to the next rooms or he's on to the next thing. So you get a little taster of Han Solo. Whereas now he's been around people too long, and the real person's coming out. Well, there's two there's two sides to Lando with that. I mean, if you look at that, I mean, all right, the Empire have arrived and they've made a deal. As far as he's aware, he's not giving up his buddy. He's not giving up Han and Chewie. Right, yeah. He's giving up some. He's giving up some yeah. dude called Skywalker. He doesn't know. And the reason he's doing it is because now he's responsible for thousands of people living in this yeah, city. Yeah, true, you know, true. So he's actually making a decision for the greater good. If you look at it, yeah. The mistake that he makes is he trusts Vader. Yeah, yeah, because the deal the deal gets changed several times along the way, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so he's actually, you know, perhaps he's not as shrewd as what he thinks he is. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take it back. Actually, the 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 coolest line I think in the entire film is after C3PO gets smashed to bits and chopped up, and Lando just walks into the room and looks at this pile of gold mess in the middle of the room and just goes, "Something wrong with your droid?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So actually, yeah, he's the coolest guy. He is cool. <laughs> But I'd rather be Han Solo. <laughs> so we're, we're back on Dagobah. Luke then makes his decision that he's going to cut his Jedi training short against the advice of not just Yoda, but Obi-Wan as well, and go off and face Darth Vader. And this is where... This is going to be another spanner in the works, isn't it? Because, you know, he's going to fail now. Yeah. And what does, what does Yoda say? There is another. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Now... <laughs> Even as it's early Ray. as this it's film. Oh, Rich, why are we mentioning those films? Didn't we have an agreement oh, sorry, that we were just going to keep this about Empire? It could, sorry. It could well be Ray, but I think it's in like the well. Yeah. What are you doing? Let's just, keep, let's just keep it pure, guys. It's 1980, yeah? It's not 2020. True. And then basically things are just gearing up to what should on paper be your typical climactic build-up to a big end battle. Everyone guesses you're reunited. Darth Vader gets his ass handed to him. But no, <laughs> this this is all going the other way. We've had the big battle at the beginning. The way the, the, the film is going now, there's, there's climaxes to certain films. Like, you know, the, 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 I, will, I, I will and have said, I think the end, or, or, or maybe the last hour of Return of the Jedi is just some of the most amazing piece of film I've ever seen. It's just operatic and it's, it's tying up a trilogy. In, in a lot of ways, yeah, perfectly. It, it's the it's the big sort of brawl at the end, isn't it? It's it is. the sort of it's complete battles, and like I say, we've got two di- battles on two. We've got a huge sort of battle on the the, the end or moon, and then yeah. we've got the sort of the sort of one to one battle, yeah, between Vader and Luke. But yeah. with this now, we've got Luke rushing back, knowing what's going to happen. Like I say, we've had hand hand being, Well, we've missed the bit where they go to the dining room and we get the reveal of Vader. And I tell you what, 
as much as I've just said Orlando's the coolest guy in the galaxy, now those doors slide open and Vader stood at the end of that table and Han's immediate reaction it's is the, just yeah, just the quickest draw and just yeah, blasted yeah. him. At that point, he, you know, he must know. He must know that he's not getting out there alive. Yeah. But it's just a thought that he just immediately just shoots at Vader yeah. without a second sort of hesitation. How much would you give, right, to see the subsequent scene where they all uncomfortably sit down and actually have that dinner? <laughs> I was gonna say, why did why did they go to the why did they go to the extremes of laying out food on a table? Why was Vader sat at the head of the table like he was gonna check? Because you know, it's like some sort of like space chicken nuggets they got on the table, but Vader can't eat anyway. Surely there was an uncomfortable deleted scene later on where they were all looking at Boba Fett and he was just too shy to take his helmet off, and it, it was. <laughs> In that situation again, it's Vader that stood at the head of the table and Boba Fett stood around the corner. Now, if Boba Fett was stood at the head of the table and Vader wasn't there, they'd be more suspicious about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Whereas, it's, it's, but is that is that is that Vader saying, you know, is that Vader being in complete control of it and he's gonna, you know, he's gonna be the kind of the surprise and he's gonna want he, he wants them to know straight away what's going on, or is it Boba Fett thinking to himself, well, there's a chat, it's probably not gonna happen. There's a chance here that Vader's gonna get shot, so I'm gonna allow <laughs> yeah. him to be out there. Yeah. On the walk to the dining room, Bob has been going, do you know what, Vader, I reckon you would have better go at the end of the table. You you go and then introduce me afterwards. (laughs) It's like the beginning of every podcast we do. It's like Boba Fett's like, I'm the guy behind the guy. I think my interpretation of that is that at this stage, Lando is pretty convinced that he's going to be sat down at a table and Vader's going to be there and say, right, you guys are going to stay here with Lando but I'm taking Luke and this is the deal. Mm, yeah. And I think that's why I think Vader's almost going along with the ruse. A, because it gets into that room and B, because when Lando gives the warning, he says before more empire troops arrive for all we know, there's only like a hundred empire troops there yeah. with Vader and a couple of bounty hunters. Now, we don't know a lot about Cloud City, but it's pretty certain there's thousands of people there. Now, if yeah. every one of them has got a gun, as good as Vader and the Empire are, for a very short time, they're outgunned, they're outnumbered. Yeah, yeah true. So I think I think Vader's just I think Vader's just playing along at that stage, just to sort of like literally get in there and say, right, you guys are going to be held captive now until Luke arrives, and then I'm going to take Luke and you lock and just you know chill out here then. Yeah. Which does seem a bit strange, but I think that was the plan he sold to Lando. <laughs> and we're never going to know if he actually sat down and ate anything, but shortly after that, then you've got that scene with Han Solo being tortured. And apparently, that device he's torturing with is a metal analysis device. As he leaves with Lando and goes outside to meet Boba Fett, the screams in the background are just. Yeah, yes. exactly. This is continuous. And it's continuous as well. Yeah. It's not just one scream, he carries on going. Yeah. Take Captain Solo to Jabba the Hutt after I have Skywalker. He's no good to me dead. He will not be permanently damaged. Lord Vader, what about Leia and the Wookiee? They must never again leave this city. That was never a condition of our agreement, nor was giving hand to this bounty hunter. Perhaps you think you're being treated unfairly? No. Good. 
It would be unfortunate if I had to leave the garrison here. This deal is getting worse all the time. Yeah. And then he gets dumped back into the room where uh, Chewie is fixing C-3PO. And that like ashen look on his face, he's completely drained. It's like He didn't even ask me any questions. You know, I was thinking at the time, yeah, why has he tortured him? And then, again, like I say, when the penny dropped and I worked out, you know, or, or slightly older teenage me worked out what was going on, I was like, holy shit, you know, what, what a film. It's great. It's, it is it's great. Nice, brilliant. It's brilliant. It's, yeah. it's so well done. So something that was supposedly a kid's film, that was a pretty dark term, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. It, it's like the way that Leia embraces his hand when he's lying on that table and he's all beat up and whatever. And it's just like, it's slowly gearing up towards that thing of them actually having that kiss later on in the carbon freezing chamber. Uh, you know, Luke has landed on Cloud City. Do we see him land before Han is is frozen? I don't think we do, do we? No, no we don't. We, don't he, we, we get given the corridor, don't we? Of course we do, yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, after the scene where Lando comes in and says, look, whatever, and then Han punches him, then we go to the carbon freezing chamber, which i got to say, out of the 64-odd sets that were made for this film, not only is this one of the best, but this is one of the best sets I've ever seen in any film. The lighting is just incredible. It just looks like nothing else. Everyone on that set just looks amazing. The Stormtroopers have got this orange glow. Boba Fett looks incredible. There's all of this orange reflecting off Darth Vader. But what a set. With that, I mean, if you gave me a location where I could get married, that'd be a... <laughs> yeah. That's, that's how good it looks. It but, is, uh, yeah. But like you see, it's, it's literally building up to something because we've got no idea what a carbon, you know, a carbonite freezer is. We've got no idea what... No. If, if, if Vader had explained his plan and said, when Luke arrives, I'm going to freeze him in carbonite, then I'm going to take him to the Emperor, we'd all be like scratching our heads thinking, what's he going to do? Yeah. We now get to see that they're... Te- and again, you know, a real dark turn. They don't know if it's going to work. Yeah. So we're going to test. It. I'm going to use him as my guinea pig to, to make sure it works. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it's and, and it is a thing of now. Obviously, in in the, in the Star Wars universe, carbonite freezing is obviously something which is very economical and used a lot by bounty hunters. <laughs> but this is the first. This is the first time it's happened. We are very much testing the water here to see whether or not it'll work and whether they'll still be breathing once they're frozen. Yeah. yeah. And we're going to say we get that we get that iconic line then, don't we? Oh yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> I love you. I know. And again, like even in the build-up to that, like Carrie Fisher is acting just with looks. There's that scene where she looks at Vader, and she just backs off and walks towards Han and Chewie, like as if yeah, she's she knows him from before. She's been tortured by him, but at this point now, there's just this fear of like this this overwhelming thing of dread, and everything is falling apart for this group. What was the original line? I think it was something like she said, "I love you," and he said, "Yeah, don't forget that because I'm I'll be back." I'm, I'm coming back. I'm coming back, yeah. See you soon, so yeah. That just doesn't work, does it? The stories I've heard are a little bit different to what the, you know they, they, they say on like the, the behind-the-scenes documentaries and stuff. They say that Harrison Ford just had a word with George Lucas, didn't feel that that line worked, and put that line of dialogue in himself. Him and Kirsten improvised the line, and Kirsten 
yeah. Pierce to say just roll with it and stuff like that. I've I've heard the, I think the same story you're going to allude to. Yeah. Now it, it's more down to the fact that Carrie Fisher wasn't her best on that day. Maybe she'd had a bit of a rough night the night before. I, I think they all. I think they all had. They, they all had. Yeah. In fact, yeah, they had. <laughs> they done. Yeah, I think at one point party in the film, the, party, party with the Rolling Stones, well, yeah, and, and, and Eric yeah. Idle had given them this um, yeah. <laughs> drink, which uh, didn't react too well with them. But yeah, apparently Ford actually got a bit frustrated with Fisher, and they were doing take after take. And in the end, she says, "I love you," and he just says, "I know," and accidentally or comes up with one of the coolest lines of dialogue ever. Period. I think that just encapsulates Han Solo, doesn't it? It does. It was like literally at that point. I think. The line, you know, you know, just remember that because I'm coming back is again what I was alluding to, which is hand sort of putting up this personal bravado and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. But the I know just works a lot better because oh, it's yeah. almost a case. It's almost a case of yeah, I know, baby, <laughs> you know. But he, but he's showing as well as he doesn't know how to be romantic. He doesn't know because that isn't you know. You imagine saying that to 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 our other halves now, kind of thing. You know, it's not what she wants to hear. No, but Rich, he's kind of saying, finally, finally. You know, she's finally saying it. I know you do, kind of thing. You know, Rich, I'm I'm sat in a room where I've got a picture on my wall which says I love you, I know, which was bought for me, and I'm looking at a Valentine's card which says I love you, I know, <laughs> because every opportunity I get to say it, I say it. <laughs> Yeah, this whole scene, you know, if if that climax to the Return of the Jedi is operatic, then this is up there with it. The the music, the way that Leia is looking at, you know, Han frozen in carbonite, the way he's frozen with his mouth open and his hands out as if he's just terrified or in pain. Ah, it's just. God. And before and before he goes in the car, like when Chewie starts kicking off, I mean, we know that you know this could rip you, you rip off you know stormtroopers' heads if he yeah. wanted. And he's like, just chill out. You go look after the princess now. Mm. You know, so it gives us that sort of depth for Chewie's character as well, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that, a, the, the roar that Chewie lets out. Just there's a lot of that in Chewie in this film. Yeah, yeah. because there's there's yeah. right back on Hoth yeah. when the doors when close the doors and close, we don't yeah. know whether or not they're going to be there. Is that is that gut wrenching roar that he gives because he doesn't because for all he knows his friend has gone and isn't coming back. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people look at it as like almost Chewbacca is like Han Solo's dog. I don't think he is. I mean, at all. Like you know, oh God, no. I, I I think you know, and he's far more of a bond with Luke. He's far more of a bond with Leia. But if you look, he's the only one who gives three PO you know a, a second chance. Yeah, I yeah. love that little scene where he goes out of his way to go and find C three PO, puts him back together. It's just you know, no character in this film gets short shrift. But again, that's that's at the starting point. Then, like you say, when Tan comes out and as a as a child, that absolutely terrified me. The look of pain on that mm. carbonite. Yeah, you know, thanks. at this stage, Han Solo's already working. Look, I'm gonna have to concede this battle, but I'm not gonna lose the war. So if I go in this car, like there's a chance I'll come out. There's a chance I can get back. There's a chance I can put all this right. And at the same time, him and Lando coming from a similar sort of background, as is highlighted later on in the films. But they've almost got the same line of thinking. Because I think this is the point now where Lando's thinking, right, this isn't a case now of me just biting my lip. Hmm. How can I get out of this? Because he goes over and checks to see if Solo's still breathing. Yeah, he's check. He's checking the car, and I, and I think at that point he's already formulated a plan in his head. Of course he is. Yeah. Of, like, yeah. how can I how can I turn this round now? How can I make this better? How can I get Han out of this car? And I, how can I, you know, sort of save the day? Because he, he's already given a warning now to the people of the city to try and leave, evacuate yes. before more yeah. of the Empire arrive. So now he knows it's my responsibility towards them has almost disappeared now. My responsibility now is to my old buddy Han and to get him back. But so, something's happened off camera that that they've had some sort of acknowledgement between the two that that that, that Lando is going to is going to try and make it right. Lando is they, it's because well, they, they Solo is confident that. He's going in there, and and the be- their best chance is Lando 
because well, that, that Islander city, scene. isn't it? Yeah, you have that little scene, don't you? When they're when they're in the prison within the prison cell, when he comes in and like hand, you know, gives him a smack in the mouth, and yeah, yeah. Says, Look, I'm trying to, do, you know, I'm trying to trying to help us all here. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to keep everything together. You know, it's this dude Skywalker or whatever his name is. You know, for all he knows, yeah, yeah. Han and Leia have got no relationship at all to him, as far as he's aware at that point. Yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, I'm just trying to keep the peace. You know, get him out of here. He can have his Skywalker, dude. And you know, me, you, me, and you will be all right. Like, you know, I've saved your lives. Yeah, I think that's yeah. what he thought he was doing. You got hand frozen, you know, carbonite goes off with Boba Fett. You know, Lando puts his plan into place, and all his guards take the stormtroopers out. And then we've got Luke Skywalker back in the carbon freezing chamber with Darth Vader. Well, prior to prior to that, we get the most obvious line of all time because we see the hand getting transported out, and the stormtroopers dragging Leia away. And then Boba Fett takes a shot at Luke, and Leia sticks her head back on the corner and says, "Luke, it's a trap." Yeah, like as if he needed to be told. <laughs> yeah. I, thought, I didn't realise. I thought that was the traditional welcome. Yeah. <laughs> that was that, that was a bit of George Lucas script that stayed in by mistake, yeah. wasn't it? Hey guys, we 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 said about reasons why Boba Fett is cool. That ship, Slave One. Oh. Wow. Yeah. It, this really? doesn't even look like anything else we've seen before, as far as spaceships go. Much like the Millennium Falcon doesn't, and that's why I think yeah. that looks that is so iconic. You know, the, the design fits in with the character. That was the one thing I was really glad of with the Mandalorian is that he didn't have the same ship. Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. If he pulled, if he pulled up on like Slave Two, I'd have been like, oh, yeah. yeah. I was actually slightly disappointed when I first saw the ship the Mandalorian was flying around in because I thought, you know, well, I'm, I'm sure all these Mandalorian bounty hunters have like really cool ships, and it's mm-hmm. just looked like a sort of like. I don't know, like a Ford Transit, really, didn't it? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's no, there's no urgency with him either, is there? It's just he's casually walking out, he's flicking the switches in the ship, he's just kind of like he's, he is just cool, he is just, he's doing it at his own pace. There's no kind of scramble to get away. He's doing it at his own pace, and he's going to go. Yeah, he's, he's completely in good. You get the impression with Boba Fett through when he's completely in control of every situation he's in, isn't he? Yeah. Definitely, it's going to be interesting in in season two of the Mandalorian if it is right that Bob is in it. It is going to be interesting to see that kind of interaction as to how his character develops. The guy whose name I can't pronounce has been cast, doesn't he, to play him. So he's, he's shown up as a cast list. Uh, Tamira Morrison, yeah. One of my favourite bits of editing in any film, people who are maybe watching this film as they listen to us now, is there's the bit where Boba Fett has flown off on Slave 1 and the Rebels go back inside Crowd City and R2-D2 does a little 360 spin and then we've got this smash cut which is Darth Vader sort of parrying and pushing Luke away. But the way they edit back from R2-D2 back into that scene is as if it was kind of like mid-movement. Yeah. It just adds a little bit of energy and sort of thrusts you back into it. And it's not the first time they do that in this lightsaber duel. There's loads of little abrupt little cuts and it just adds so much to the fact that Darth Vader goes into this fighting Luke one-handed. Luke's got his lightsaber held with two. Yeah. Darth Vader's fighting him one-handed. And he's, you know, backs him off into the carbon freezer thing. He's like, uh, all too easy. <laughs> yeah. And then we get a mad, mad Superman jump. Superman jump, jump. yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just before that, when they're going down the corridor, you realise in that sequence, Vader's massive. Yes, yeah. isn't he? You know, he is, I mean, he is a beast, isn't he? And and, and he is, you know, I know that we had, um, obviously, the sequence in um, Rogue One where Vader was fighting mm-hmm. and everything there. But this, this was the first time that we've properly seen yeah. him kicking ass. And, and, and he is an absolute beast. And you compare it to the lightsaber duel in Star Wars, which was 
basically Bob Anderson and Alec Guinness, two elderly chaps, even though Bob Anderson was a master swordsman. Yeah. This is just fantastic. The lightsaber duel at the end of Return of the Jedi is incredible, but this one here is, is just... You really feel that Luke is struggling, but at the same time, yeah. almost, almost holding his own because he's, you know, fighting to save his friends. And the fact that he just moves from one location to the other, and you know, and he ends up on that sort of like wind vein. I mean, this again, the set design is just unbelievable. It's beautiful. I gotta be honest. That's mm. that set. That, that main set there is absolutely beautiful. It looks like something. It, it could be a painting on your wall, couldn't it? Yeah. It looks that good. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But like you say, with Vader using the one hand, you know, he only really takes Luke seriously when he gets a little brush on his shoulder, doesn't he, with a lightsaber? Yeah. That's well, the only time he really tries yeah, to hurt. Yeah. That's the only time he really tries to hurt Luke. I mean, a lot of the time he's flicking stuff at him with, you know, with the, with the force. It's almost like demonstrating him how powerful he could be if he would just listen to him. Well, it's a, it's after they get separated, then Luke meets up with him again, and Vader's throwing stuff at him. Vader at that point adopts the two-handed grip because he's thinking. Yeah, do you know this uh, this this boy of mine? He actually uh, he knows his stuff. Well, after after Lucas walked through a tunnel, looks remarkably like the cave. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's almost like you know. I think at that point, like, like we were talking about different versions of the future happening, and you know mm. what you're seeing is not this. I think what Luke saw in that cave was one possible scenario. Yeah, that's right. Where if he gives in to anger and strikes out of Vader, he's going to end yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. This you know this whole last scene to the final build up and the reveal. And everyone now knows the story, the fact that nobody on set knew the true identity of Darth Vader and the fact that he was Luke's father. I think it was like Mark Hamill was told, obviously moments before, wasn't it? He was told. Yeah, you know. yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. David Prose was actually giving dialogue saying Obi Wan never told you what happened to your father, and the line he gave him was Obi Wan killed your father. Obviously, Mark Hamill, in response, delivers the line, no. But obviously, in his yeah. head, he's thinking, no, actually, they're going to be... You know, James Earl Jones is going to be reading out different dialogue here. Mm-hmm. And even James Earl Jones says that when he read that dialogue on the page, the fact that Darth Vader was Luke's father, he thought, no, he's lying. He's manipulating Luke. Um, it's going to come out in the next film that he, even James Earl Jones just couldn't take the fact that... George Lucas had psych- uh, psychologists look at it, didn't they? Because yeah. they, they were they were so concerned with the young audience that would be watching this. Mm. What would be their reaction? Would they would they would this kind of really really fuck with their minds, or would they you know how would they cope with this information? And they basically said that those that are going to accept it would accept it. Yeah. And 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 it'll just be a case of well you know they, they take it at face value, and the others will think well no it's, it's a lie. It's, it, you know we'll find out later on that it's not true. It's the ultimate betrayal. It's ultimate betrayal, really, isn't it? Because it's the one person that's ever taken taking notice of Luke and sort of taking care of Luke in Obi-Wan has lied to him. Yeah. And then you've got your sort of ultimate evil you're facing, a guy you've just witnessed, you know, torturing your friends. He's actually your father. It's, there must be a bit of that in me. Mm. You know, that I, you know, this person's the most evil person in the universe. I must have like, you know, a small percentage of it in me because, you know, yeah. I'm my father's son, you know? Yeah. yeah. But then obviously, like you say, Neil, Luke gets a little bit of the upper hand on Vader, whacking one in the shoulder. Vader's immediate response, chop his hand off. And again, yeah. we're talking about what is primarily a kid's film on paper. You know, looking at the rating and the audience that it was at the time targeting. You know, this is a really dark, messed up, fucked up kid's film. I know the cliche well, exactly. is... Exactly. If you compare that to Obi-Wan's death, where it's basically like, and then some clothes fall on the floor. Yeah. You know, when you look at it, the sort of backstory, which are, did exist when Star Wars was being made, but the backstory was the reason that I'm stuck in this suit and the reason I can't, you know, breathe mm. properly is because you did this to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he's remarkably restrained in the way he yeah. kills off of you and really, isn't he? Yeah. Like, you know, but like you say, with that, the comparison to that is like, well, I'm just going to play around with you. I'm going to toy around with you now. 
Oh, you, oh, you, you actually overstepped the mark now. You've cut my shoulder. Right, your, your arm's coming off. You're yeah, losing the hand, Well, even before that, as he's fighting them along the corridor out onto the wind vane, Vader's really going for it. He is really, like, swinging that lightsaber and it is just... That's a proper sword fight. It's not, like, the over-choreographed bullshit of... And, sorry? Yes. Fans of the Phantom Menace, I love that lightsaber battle, but it, it is over-choreographed. And far worse than that is the one in Revenge of the Sith, which is... It's not them trying to hit each other, it's them trying to hit each other's lightsabers, and that is not how yeah. sword fighting yeah. works. You're not trying it's to hit like your opponent's dance. sword. Yeah, exactly. It's a dance. And anyone, and I, I've got into arguments with people uh, on Twitter about it. If you can watch those side by side and not see the difference, then sorry, you just, you're just blind to what actual fighting is. And do, you in, remember we used to, do you remember we used to watch our show Deadliest Warrior? Deadliest Warrior, yeah. And yeah. it used to always come down to, no matter what happened... The deciding factor was blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma. It's yeah, a, they put exactly. like a Zulu. They put like a Zulu warrior up against a ninja. They put like you know a, yeah. a specialist guy against SAS and stuff like that. It was always the one that struck hard and yes. struck fast and struck more that won that battle. <laughs> strike yeah. first, strike hard, no mercy, sir. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> then obviously we've got the big reveal where you've got you know Luke minus his hand is climbing out onto the the very end of the wind vane. And then you've got that dialogue exchange. Let me take you back, right? 1997. I'd seen Empire Strikes Back several times. And going to see it on the big screen for the first time that I could remember, whether or not I actually did see it when I was three and a half years old with my parents, it doesn't matter because i got no recollection of it. But watching it back in 1997, a film I'd seen dozens of times, every time since, I, I watched that scene of... You are beaten. It is useless to resist. Don't let yourself be destroyed as Obi-Wan did. There is no escape. Don't make me destroy you. Luke, you do not yet realize your importance. You have only begun to discover your power. Join me, and I will complete your training. With our combined strength, we can end this destructive conflict and bring order to the galaxy. I'll never join you! If you only knew the power of the dark side, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough! He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. No. No. That's not true. That's impossible. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. can destroy the Emperor. He has foreseen this. It is your destiny. Join me, and together we can rule the galaxy as father and son. No, I am your father. Every time, even re-watching it recently for this episode, it gets the hairs on the back of my neck yeah. going up. 
it still chills. And it's, yeah. it, I, I think personally, and I, you know, I'll go, I'll go on record and say that I think it's the best reveal shock twist of any film I've ever seen. I, agree. I mean, with, you know, if you look at the end of Fight Club, that's a fantastic, you know, twist in the mm-hmm. tale. You know, the numerous, you know, usual suspects, all these great films from nineties. I think a lot of the time, a lot of these stories were written, and a lot of the time, the people actually had the balls to put in a twist, like he's your imaginary friend, or he is Kaiser Soze, yeah. is because years before, someone said, "No, I'm I your father." father. Yeah. yeah. With my with my eldest daughter now, she's eleven now. When she first watched the Star Wars films five years ago, ish, we watched them in in the the correct order, um, and that's one, two, three. Uh, that's, no, it's not. It's four, five, six. It's uh, Star Wars. You watched them in numerical order, you mean? Yeah, the, the, yes. yeah, those, those three films. So we watched we, Star Wars first, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, and then we did go to the prequels. And that moment, because I don't remember what it was like for me, but that moment of the reveal, the look on her face when he re- when Vader reveals that he was Luke's father, she was dumbstruck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How can that possibly? And I just thought that is that's what I wanted. I, I was able to watch it through her eyes kind of thing, you know, watch the whole progression. And it is, as you say, it is because it's been so many, it's been riffed so many times. It's been parodied so many times. It, it, it you kind of, what do you do? Anyone in our, of our generation, it's easy to forget the impact of that reveal. It's easy to, to forget the impact of the empire strikes back. And, and I think that, you know, I would, I would implore anyone who's a star Wars fan. Don't watch it in, in, in episode order one, two, three and onwards. No, you no. have to watch the original trilogy first because Absolutely. to get that, it is to, to see that, that was, that, that reveal was incredible. I'll give you a similar story, a similar scenario, which was out of my control. I came home from work the one day to find out that my son had watched episode one oh. and he was very young at the time. And then the following weekend, episode two was on. And I was thinking, oh, please, no. And he'd watched episode one. I think he was about six at the time. And then he watched episode two. And Anakin was basically the action figure that he wanted to buy in Tesco's one day. And I was trying to talk him out of buying Anakin because I didn't want to break his heart because basically Anakin was becoming his hero. Anakin, yeah. if you like, was becoming his version of Luke and Han. I didn't have the, I didn't have the heart to do it. And I gave him numerous reasons why you shouldn't have Anakin, this action figure he wanted to buy, why you should have this other action figure. And in the end, I leant over and whispered in his ear, he's Darth Vader. And he went, no, he's not. No, he's not. He can't be. He can't be. <laughs> and I was like, right, okay. So I let him buy the action figure. I thought, son, you'll learn the hard way. And then watching Empire Strikes Back, he looked at me with such a look at this day, which is about two and a half, three years after that, <laughs> with a look at this thing of like, my God, old man, you weren't lying, were you? <laughs> I was like, oh, it's going to break his heart. Like, don't let him buy that action figure. Yeah. So obviously, yeah, we've got the big reveal. Luke ends up chucking him off or chucking himself off into basically oblivion, which again goes back to his training from Yoda, where he's calm, you know, at ease with himself and realizing that's the only way out of it. He then uses the force to communicate with Leia, which, you know, again, is that the first suggestion that they're brother or sister? Oh, sorry, brother and sister. Well, first of all, he manages to to fall very comfortably into that tube. I think he was sucked into it. I think it was, it was like a ventilation thing. Right. Just to go on, we've we've talked about this film not uh, being tinkered with too much. There's one bit of tinkering in this film I absolutely hate is the point where he's falling and he screams no. Yeah, but that that was removed. That's that that was later removed. Yeah, but just to put that in, in the first place, because oh me, yeah, like, yeah, God, yeah. That to me is at that point he's realised that his whole world's collapsed. Everything he knew was a lie, yeah, and yeah. rather than turn into the dark side, which he knows at that point is inevitable if he stays there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He commits he commits suicide. I think I think he's just lucky that that event opens, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he's I think when he's he's not falling off there, he's jumping off there. That's yeah. always been my interpretation. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, yeah. 
Yeah, just leaving it to fate. And then we have basically what leads up to, you know, we've got a little bit more action with the Millennium Falcon, uh, you know, trying to sort out this hyperdrive whilst they're evading the Star Destroyers. They eventually go off into hyperspace and then we expect Darth Vader to turn on Admiral Piat and start choking him. But no, he doesn't. He's just kind of like doesn't say anything and just walks off. I think at that point he realises now that this battle's going to go on a little bit longer. That's right, yeah. And like that's the difference between the sort of impetuous young Jedi and the sort of more battle-scarred, wiser Sith, if you like. It's like, if I, do, if I don't win today, I'll get you next week. Vader makes one last attempt to plead with Luke via the Force and, you know, to sort of seduce him, but he's not having any of it. Luke calls out to Ben. It's all sort of winding down after that big shock reveal and yeah it's not your typical ending it's far from it but well the other thing we haven't mentioned as well is lando now has not only taken back the falcon but it appears to be wearing han solo's clothes he is, yeah yeah this, this is where the coolness of lando kind of it's like what, what are you wearing his clothes for you know is that obviously there's nothing else there but they've they've, they've met it with the rebels by that point surely there's other clothes to wear i've always had this over sense i know it's come out that Ford was only sensed you know was only signed to one film at a time and the others were signed to you know multiple deals and stuff like that but I always think it was the intention as a backup plan of we'll make Lando so fucking yeah. cool out, you know, just because if Ford doesn't come back, okay, he died in the car, like we've got a new guy who's piloting the, uh, oh, yeah. the Falcon mm-hmm. now. Without a doubt, that's what it was, wasn't it? Yeah. That was absolutely what it was. To put him in his clothes, it, they don't even fit him. <laughs> no. <laughs> Every time you get a regeneration of Doctor Who, you get the first episode where Peter Capaldi runs around in, you know, in uh, Matt Smith's clothes or vice versa, you know. Yeah. And it, it, it's always showing that the character has slightly changed, but he's still the same. Yeah. And just sort of play that trick with Lando and Han. Just, <laughs> it's just a really bizarre fucking yeah. choice. <laughs> they can't jump to hyperspace because, yet again, it's been disabled. All the way through that film, the coolest ship in the film. If you look about downplay and stuff, all the way through that that. The coolish, you know, vehicle in the Star Wars universe is breaking down all the way through that film. Mm. So then we've got, you know, again, like this ending. And even the final shot of just the Rebel fleet going into hyperspace after Chewie and Lando have gone off in the Falcon to go and look for Han. It's just all downbeat. It is, in a way, kind of uplifting because... Yeah, we do get one uplifting sort of end shot, if you like, don't we? Yeah. But I, I just, when we said before, the start of the thing, you know, when we're talking about our first recollections of Empire Strikes Back, one of my very, very first memories of it was having a conversation with my dad. My dad likes films. Having a conversation with my dad, and I asked some sort of question along the lines of, you know, you know, the goodies always win. The, that was the crux of the question was, why do the goodies always win in films? And I will always remember my dad saying to me, doesn't always happen in Star Wars. I don't remember him saying Empire Strikes Back, but I remember him saying, watch the Star Wars films, and and it, it doesn't always go the way that you think it's going to. And there are, there are, there's a film or films of the Star Wars in the in the Star Wars uh, um, film series whereby sometimes the baddies win. You know, and it was that kind of thing of. Granted, it it was a two film, certainly you know two for Mark, like I said before, um, coming off the back of of Star Wars, but. In isolation, that film, in, you know, in the, for the 1980 audience and anyone who sort of watched it after, that film ends on they're they're on the back foot. The the, the you know the empire are, are are winning there. Granted, there's a threat, but the empire have won by that point. It's a remarkably bold choice from Lucas when you look at the fact, like you see, he's financing the film himself. I mean, at one point they were trying to recall a debt, weren't they? they were yeah. Trying to recall a loan halfway through yeah. the film and stuff like that, not to tag a happy ending onto it. Yeah. But it's 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 a bold choice, but it's saying I mean, like we say, like you know, we see with other films, this is the Empire Strike, you know, of of this franchise or the Empire version of this story. It was the first story I'd seen definitely as a kid 
But throughout the years, I mean, there was an episode of Magnum where Magnum got, it was the guy who kept him in a prisoner of war camp and he came back to Hawaii and he was like under the assumed name and right at the end, Magnum just shot him. And it was like a really sort of dark end. And there was an episode of Miami Vice or sort of a few years later where Crocker and Tubbs were going to catch the drug dealer and he got away. And, uh, you know, Tubbs was sort of like really irate and Crocker just sort of shrugged his shoulders and said, can't win them all, kid, you know. And then, like you say, it goes right through then to like sort of um, Infinity War, definitely, which actually ends on more of a downbeat when you oh, think about it. Yeah. Because there's no sort of like, well, at least we're back together now. It's like, well, hang on, you know, 60% of us are gone. Mm, yeah. This, I think, was the first film that did that, that actually ended on a downbeat, but somehow gave you a bit of hope that it, it would all be all right in the end. But, but that's yeah. it. And, it's, and again, it's hard to look at it in that isolation, isn't it? Because we obviously know what comes next. But, um, yeah. you know, the thought, you know, that, that thing again, watching it through child's eyes and you're at the end and, and my daughter saying to me, you know, that can't be the end. What's, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And and it is, it was, it was a really, really, it was a really, because it would have been very easy to have given even a, even a teaser something just to show that. But of course, they didn't know then, did they? They didn't know well, that think, Solo was coming back. They didn't know that, that Harrison Ford was going to be back because of that time. They didn't know that film was, was going to be a success. Exactly. <laughs> so it, could have, it could have effectively have ended there. Yeah. You know, no, I'm of a certain age where... I can actually remember Return of the Jedi coming out. I can remember going to the cinema to see Return of the Jedi. And the anticipation, like I say, I can only compare it to the last two Avengers films, but the anticipation I had for the Jedi was just astronomical as a kid. I just couldn't wait to see how, you know, I, I was kind of, is Vader going to die? But it was like, just like, how's Han going to come back? Is Luke going to yeah. be okay now? Uh, what's happening with the Falcon? I had so many questions because... You know, by that stage, I'd seen it in the cinema, I'd seen it on TV. I think I even owned a VHS of it by the time The Jedi came out. Well, it, was, so it, it, was, was, it was event cinema, wasn't it? It was event cinema. Yeah, the only, uh, yes, it was. The only thing that we can compare to that we've seen since is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So when you look at those films were built up over 10 years and, you know, 20-odd different features, hmm. you know, to do that with two films, like I say, off the back of Star Wars, to do that and be confident enough to say, no, this is just the second chapter. Yeah. I'm going to give ultimate kudos to everyone involved with that film for that. Yeah. Just to wrap things up with a few like factoids about Empire post-release. Uh, within three months of its release, Lucas had recouped his $33 million investment. He was now the world's most successful independent filmmaker. And as a thank you to everyone involved in making that possible, he shared out Empire's profits with every one of his employees and he handed out over $5 million in bonuses in 1980. The film's success then allowed him to build Skywalker Ranch, which is the hub of his own Lucasfilm empire consisting of LucasArts, THX, Skywalker Sound and Industrial Light and Magic, which themselves gave birth to Pixar, which was eventually sold to Disney. As I said, unfortunately, Alan Ladd Jr. had to resign as the head of Fox after heavy criticism from the board over the deal that he'd made with Lucas. And after Ladd's departure, Lucas, no longer having any loyalty to the studio, took his next project, Raiders of the Lost Ark, to Paramount but that is a story for another episode yeah so guys just what's your final thoughts on the film that is The Empire Strikes Back if, if I could only ever watch one Star Wars film someone asked me the question you've got to lose every other Star Wars film you can only ever watch one and that's the one you're you know th that is it it'll be The Empire Strikes Back it is for me it is the definitive Star Wars film it's got the very minor flaws if they even exist as I said before only can be picked upon because they exist because of other films. Yeah. You know, when you look at it as the saga as a whole, when you look at this film as part of the original trilogy, it is it, it is as, as close to perfect as you will ever get. And it is, you know, you talk we talk about our top five films. 
We've all got slightly different films in our top five, but I think the one film that we've all got is Empire Strikes Back. From the music, the acting, the story, the script, the effects, it, it is, it's absolutely perfect. The time and the pace, it, it gives you everything you think about Star Wars, every, every little kind of uh, thing that's been parodied. You know, aside from, you know, things like the Ewoks and, and, and the business shit like Jar Jar Binks and all the rest of it. Everything you love about Star Wars is in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. And yet, in, in many ways, it's the Star Wars film that's most unlike the rest of them. Exactly. And, and, and you've got to ask yourself, and, and, and it is a very interesting fact. You said before that it is the film that George Lucas arguably had the least to do with. And yet in the wider Star Wars community, you know, certainly the, the fans, certainly our generation of Star Wars fans, many, and I would argue that probably the vast majority of people would argue that this is the best film. So it's very interesting. It, you know, it, it comes back to that thing that Lucas is a fantastic ideas man, a fantastic story man. But when he is, when he is too involved, when he's, when, he's, when he's writing, when he's directing, when he, is, when he has his fingers in all the pies, it doesn't turn out so good. And he, he's gone on record himself and, and fair play to him in, in this respect. He's gone on record himself to say that, you know, he doesn't enjoy script writing. That is not where his, where his, his, his kind of forte is. Carrie Fisher, I remember seeing an interview with Carrie Fisher where she'd say like, you know, they, they'd even, they got to the point where they were joking with Lucas, you know, you can write this stuff, but you can't fucking say it. Yeah. it you, you can't, you cannot take away from, from him the fact that the ideas that he had that spawned this incredible film franchise, very uneven film franchise, but certainly when you look at the original trilogy, this incredible film franchise that changed the face of cinema and the peak of that franchise, for, for me, it has to be Empire Strikes Back. It is it is absolutely perfect, I think. Yeah. For me, it's, it's a film, as much as I enjoy it, as much as I love it and absolutely adore it, it's a film I don't watch that much. And I find myself watching this film every sort of two or three years. All of my adult life, all my, all my child life, all my childhood, I loved it. But all of my adult life, I always come out with the same thing. I literally finish that film and go, that is just a fucking masterpiece. It is perfect in every way. Like I say, people could pick holes, and you could pick holes in anything, to be honest. There's nothing that stands out in that film where I go, oh, that bit's jarring, or that bit takes me out of it. Literally, every time I watch that film, I enjoy it more than I did last time. And that's, to me, it's a perfect film. There's, I've probably got a handful of films that I literally could watch at any time that I would say I would defend to the hilt. And that would be pretty much, if not the top of my list, pretty much near the top of my list. It is an absolutely perfect film. And like I said, it, had this not been a success, we wouldn't be talking about Star Wars. George Lucas wouldn't have $4 billion in the bank. You know, Disney wouldn't be building theme parks. It's all off the back of this film rather than Star Wars for me. I agree. Yeah, all I can add to that, guys, you summed up perfectly is, yeah, same for me. This is one of my all-time favourite films. It's in my top five. It's possibly in my top three maybe it's certainly up there and yeah i think there's an argument certainly that this is one of the greatest films of all time without doubt doesn't do anything wrong it's the one film that's come unscathed you know as, as unscathed as it can be from all of these additional tinkerings that lucas did yeah like you say rich you know the subsequent stuff that has come has kind of unraveled a bit of the, the mythology of star wars a little bit and undone the good work that the lucas did but you just can't take away from the fact that he has created which you know something that is for me personally and i know for you guys as well just one of the most important films ever made it's a part of our childhood it's a film that we love now just as much as we did when we were younger maybe even more so because we can appreciate the incredible filmmaking that that you know has gone into it it's just a perfect film so, gentlemen, where can people uh, get hold of you if they want to hit you up on social media for a chat? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Neil underscore Gaskin. You can also find us all on Film 89 on Twitter um, and Film 89 on Facebook as well. And many thanks to the many people who've been uh, following the page on Facebook because that's just grown, well, tenfold. So, Exponentially, yeah. you know. So, yeah, yeah, it's growing mad, haven't it? Yeah. I'm on, um, I, I, I do dabble with Twitter. I'm uh, Richard underscore Roberts. I, uh, I'm on there occasionally. So feel free to um, to follow and send a message. Yeah. And you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. And as Neil said, you can find us all at film89.co.uk and on Twitter and Facebook at film89uk. Guys, I don't know how much longer we're going to be in this uh, shitty situation we find ourselves in. I, I got a bad feeling it's going to be a lot longer than a lot of people are uh, thinking. You could say you got a bad feeling about this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think. Listen, we we all just got to be realistic, and we've all had people you know near near and dear to us who've been affected by it, and mm-hmm. but we're all getting through it. And if if we can take anything from films, is that sometimes when all looks is lost. You know, and you think you know that nothing can go right for us. There's always a return of the Jedi, and the good guys always win at the end. Yeah, fingers crossed, everyone. And uh, a little thank you, I'd like to shoot out. And Neil, I'm sure you would agree with this one. Is a mutual friend of ours who we know through film Twitter that's just made this all a little bit easier. Is good old Moose Matson. Oh wow, well, yeah. Is just on almost a daily basis is creating these cool, funny little videos. You know, it's people like Moose who are kind of going an extra mile to cheer people up, which is making all of this crap that everyone's going through a lot more bearable. Yeah, and I think that's that's the way we gotta we gotta keep that. And you know, Bill said a similar thing in the podcast me and you did with him a couple of weeks ago. All right, yeah, it might seem a bit childish and a bit futile that we're talking about a film that's forty years old and has, you know, Darth Vader and robots in it. But you've got to stay true. You've got to enjoy life still. And at the moment, we're having little bits of life taken away from us. But we can still enjoy film. We can still enjoy art. We can still talk and enthuse with each other about it. And I hope that people enjoy listening to this. Now, it might sound a real big-headed thing to say, but I hope. You know, if someone is feeling down and they've put this on, it takes them away from the drama for an hour or so. Well, that's why we do it, Neil, isn't it? Yeah. We, yeah. we, we enjoy it, don't we? You know, the minute the minute this was pitched, the idea, you know, we always knew we were going to do Empire Strikes Back at some way down yeah. the line. And, and, and the 40th anniversary is the perfect opportunity to do it. We're doing it by Skype, as I said before, which are sort of 20 miles within, you know, from each other, but we're doing it on Skype. We were all really looking forward to doing it when times are really, really crap. You've got to kind of look at the, the things that you enjoy yeah. and, and make the best of a shit situation. And we've sat around for almost three hours talking about Empire Strikes Back. You know, who doesn't want to do that? And yeah, you know, it's just goes to show good the film is because any negative stuff is sort of being aimed towards the other films in the series not towards this film and the fact that oh, must have been. yeah with, without even you know there's been no favorite segment there's been no listener questions we've still managed easily to talk for two and a half hours about one film so that just goes to show how much we've got to say about it how important this film is to us and just how much really how much depth there is to it absolutely yeah yeah definitely. definitely you know there's there's many 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 film podcasts out there and many other podcasts and I do think that one of the things that we do, we've become such a big group of, of people involved and, and, you know, it's rarely the same people on at any given time. But what you will get is a fair, balanced approach to, to whatever's being spoken about yeah. and, and a passionate approach as well. You know, the comments that we make, because we really feel warmly or, or not, but we feel passionately about the subjects that we're talking about. Yeah. And I think that that resonates with people because... Ultimately, the, these conversations are going on at the moment in WhatsApp groups. They're going on in, you know, they would be going on if we, if we could meet up with each other. And and it's kind of a lot of where we came from in the first place, in that we were just, you know, a large group of mates who just love talking about films. That That's resonates an awful lot with people. Yeah. 
That's the important message right now. People are going through hard times. Just concentrate on what you do love. Concentrate on what you do enjoy and do it now. It's hard now. We're all sort of restricted in our movements and stuff like that. People are worrying they're drinking too much. People are worrying they're not going to the gym. People are worrying they've got to cut their own hair. Let me tell you, I've been drinking too much, not going to the gym and cutting my own hair for years. I'm doing no fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> Beautiful. Let's not even start talking about cutting your own hair. Beautiful. <laughs> Oh, that's great, guys. Yeah, it's you know it's been unusual us three, you know, not being able to film in person. Personally, yeah, I would have much rather we all be sat in the same room talking about this film. But you know, such is life. At least we've been able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I've loved prepping for this episode, and you guys know that you feel the same. That we've just been really looking forward to it. And yeah, yeah. this has been a pleasure, not a chore, hasn't it? Researching it, it this is, and yeah. looking back at this has been a pleasure, absolute pleasure. It's just something that we, we, it's a film we know inside out, it's a film we love, and yeah, we'll just talk about it until the cows come home. So if you're still listening, yeah so if you're still listening yeah please ladies and gents boys and girls if you haven't already done so please leave us a positive review on apple Podcasts and make sure you hit that subscribe button on whatever your podcast provider of preference is just to ensure you never miss an episode uh we'd just like to say and this comes from everyone at the film 89 team a big thank you to all the health service workers nurses doctors and all the other medical staff that are out there fighting the good fight and the work you're all doing and the risks you're taking every day is just remarkable and we do thank you all because you are the true superheroes brings a tear to my eye when i see the sacrifices that people are making and everyone and everyone else out there as well the people who are working in the supermarkets the people oh, who are still collecting yeah, yeah. rubbish and stuff like that you know it's, they're not taking anything away from the nhs like you say they are you know fantastic i mean they are like you say the definition of a superhero right yeah. now but there's a lot of people out there that don't come under the category of key workers in the traditional sense. But like I say, you know, you're looking at people who are just going to work. You know, I've got a friend of mine who works in a supermarket. She's yeah. putting her life at risk every day, you know? Exactly. There's... The people who've got to go to work, who haven't got a choice to, you know, to, to self-isolate. The people that are helping, like, keep the wheel on. Just a massive thank you from us all to all of you out there. Absolutely. Definitely. Secondly. Yeah. And whatever you do, guys and girls, just stay safe. We're out of here. <laughs>